Two weeks ago, we brought former guest Terry Lovelace back to Astonishing Legends to discuss his new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. It's a more in-depth look at his personal story, as well as a collection of some of the most bizarre tales you may have ever heard from folks who reached out to him to share their experiences. Tonight, Scott and I will share some of our favorite stories from Terry's new book, and then Terry himself will be reading three of his personal favorites as well. These stories will leave you questioning reality. They certainly have for us. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Terry Lovelace. According to the Apple Store, between 5.23 and 5.24 a.m., when I thought I was asleep in bed next to my wife, my phone, at least, was 60 feet over my house. I don't know. I don't understand that. Join us tonight for the final part of our most recent series with Terry Lovelace. And we're back. And we're back. And we're back. It's Christmas time. Hey, that's that's pretty good. You sing a no, are you terrible. good singing voice. I like it. No, no, that's uh I didn't even know the mic was on. <laughs> Claim that. Well, folks, we are back. And speaking of back, every time Terry Lovelace comes back, things just get stranger and stranger. I, I've actually gone for us from wanting to have a personal experience to hoping that I never do. Uh, not one like him anyway. <laughs> no, that's my favorite Terry story at, at a conference he was giving a lecture at, you know, yeah. maybe giving a talk. And of course, you you get some keeners, as people from the UK would say. Very enthusiastic people come up to him. And yes. this one young man said, Terry, how can I have my experience with extraterrestrials? How can I get abducted? And he's like, you just heard what I've been talking about, right? For, right. for 90 minutes. You heard that, right? Because, yeah. yeah, it's not good. Yeah, because, you don't yeah, want to do still, this. Still, I had to get my own experience. Yeah, so. <sighs> I know, I know. Well, <laughs> we're going to get into it with Terry tonight. We got a lot of good stories, but a couple of very quick notes. Firstly, the last round of pint glasses that took so long for us to get, you know, supply chain problems and all that, they came in mm-hmm. and they have all been shipped out. Some of you probably already have them, but if you don't, they should be to you soon. And if you missed the boat on those, they sold out so quick. Mm-hmm. We're likely to make a few more early next year, so be patient. We're also extremely excited to bring you what has become an annual tradition at Astonishing Legends with the 2021 Astonishing Legends Christmas Party Roundtable Extravaganza. Everything you just said there, all that stuff, that's uh, that's what you want to call the episode. Well, look, there's no words to describe it. I bet, so uh-huh. I'm, I might be embellishing a little bit. Yeah. I see. I see. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Scott is definitely having delusions of grandeur, but folks, we are excited to welcome back Jim Harold. Richard Haddam, Micah Hanks, and Rob Christofferson to reflect on 2021 and enjoy some spiked eggnog and holiday paranormal talk. Yeah, it, it's going to be a blast. All right, folks, we've got a great show for you tonight, so uh, let's get I'm into it. I'm going to be drunk. No, not, oh, at the Christmas thing, not tonight. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, not tonight. Yeah, no, yeah no. that's good, that's good. So what we decided to do for tonight's show was share some stories from Terry Lovelace's new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. We went through and picked out three stories that we liked, which we're going to read to you here shortly and discuss a little bit. Then we're going to bring Terry back to read three stories himself of escalating intensity and high strangeness. 
So the first one here is one that is pretty short, but I was super intrigued with because I'm an aviation enthusiast. And I think Forrest and I both are, but we yes. just thought this was super bizarre. And uh, we'll talk about it a little bit on the other side. Yes, this is going to be about the uh, quote unquote 727. Yes, yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. From Devil's Den, The Reckoning, case number 16, which Terry called Old School 727. Dear Mr. Lovelace, I enjoyed your book. I don't read a lot of UFO-related books, but I enjoyed yours. I want to tell you about an experience my wife and I had in Burlington. I know you worked for the state of Vermont and lived in Montpelier, so I know you must be familiar with Burlington. We live in the suburbs a few miles from campus. My wife and I own a printing business we inherited from her parents. This happened to us back in February of 2008. We had joined some friends for dinner on a Friday night. Afterward, we were headed home just a few miles down the road. As you know, there's an airport in Burlington, and we live in a flight path, so we're used to seeing and hearing aircraft. I flew airplanes in the Navy for a couple of years and had hopes of being a commercial airline pilot one day. Eye disease and the sudden onset of poor vision ended that dream, but we love our business, and everything turned out for the best. I am home for dinner every night and can read to my kids before bed, something I wouldn't be able to do as a commercial airline pilot or a Navy pilot for that matter. My vision problems are mostly corrected with glasses, so I can drive and read most fine print. We said goodnight to our friends and parted ways about 10 p.m. We had to have the babysitter home by 10.30. It was a cold night, even for Vermont standards. We each had a single glass of wine, no more. As we were winding our way down the hill toward home, we saw a really weird aircraft. My wife saw it first and pointed it out to me. It was to her right and it was low, I would say about 5,000 feet. Not too low to be on an approach, but it was still hanging in midair. I swear it looked stationary. It was not moving slowly. It was dead still. I pulled over and oriented the car where we would see it at the very top of the windshield. I rolled down my window and didn't hear any aircraft noise at all. At that altitude, we should have. We were off the main road and just inside our subdivision, so there was no other traffic. It was an old-school Boeing 727 airliner. I recognized the three rear-engine configuration with the center engine at the base of the tail. They've been out of service for years, and except for maybe Iran, they're no longer in use by anyone. Because of the lighting, I could not see the markings to identify the airline. In addition to its being motionless, it was brightly lit from the inside and the landing lights were shining brightly too. I recall that the navigation lights were proper. I did not see landing gear down. What struck me most was its speed. More precisely, its lack of speed. No jet aircraft could fly that slow on approach without stalling out. It was traveling way below glide speed and should have dropped from the sky like a duck full of buckshot. Things got even stranger. As we watched, it began a slow drift sideways. I swear it was in level flight, but just moved slowly starboard until it vanished behind buildings and trees. Airplanes do not move that way. It was not in forward flight. The entire sighting lasted about a minute or a few seconds more. It was brief, but thrilling. It was the craziest thing I had ever seen. I think if my wife and I were not so keen on aircraft, we might have drove right past it without a second thought. 
By the time I reached for my phone, it was gone from sight. I'm just glad my wife was there to witness it because no one would believe me. We just kept it between ourselves. Okay, first observation. Remember when we heard stories about people that saw, it's a whole subject in and of itself, and we could cover it one day, black helicopters. Yeah. And a lot of people would say when there's a cattle mutilation happening nearby or it just happened, they would see these black helicopters off in the distance. And then, of course, people naturally say, well, there you go. It's a, it's a government black-on-black -black operation. They're coming in. Maybe it's radiation that they're checking the cattle for. And that's, a, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad conclusion because, yeah, there might be radiation. And, of course, the, the idea there is that the soft tissues would retain the most amount of contamination. And those are what you want to collect. And that's often what's seen missing at a mutilation site. But more importantly, people say, yeah, there are sometimes these black helicopters seen off the distance and it's got to be military. But then there are a bunch of stories where people said, yeah, I saw one up close and it had no rotor. It right. made no sound. Right. Or there was no tail on it. It's just something very bizarre. It's like, it's close, maybe from a distance. That's what they wanted you to believe. Who knows? I'm speculating. This is all speculation, but I see connections here as we will throughout these stories that there are themes and elements that coincide with the rest of these other stories. And when you read all 30 of them, it's like, wow, these things keep coming up. And, and maybe they're cultural things that everybody knows about because I've been watching some of these shows. But as you will hear, or if you read the book, which we recommend, you will see that this isn't anything that I have ever seen in any sci-fi show or alien show. These yeah. are so far beyond a writer's imagination in a weird way that it's just it's just odd. The thing that's fascinating to me about this too is there's a clip on the internet of a plane frozen in the air, which I think has been proven it's a proven hoax, but it really is right. just it's jarring when you look at it. It's very interesting and <laughs> and of course yeah. that was the first thing that popped into my mind's eye when I read this story, which maybe was inspired by this story. I I don't know, yeah. but I guess what is interesting to me is, you know, I know Terry vets these folks. He'll talk about that mm -hmm. a little bit later on. But also, I guess the fact that this guy was a, a Navy pilot. And so he knew yeah. what he was looking at. He wasn't just some guy looking at a plane. He knew the model of the plane. He knew it was flying too low. He knew it was going too slow. Right. All of those things. And then on top of that, he's identifying it not only as stationary, but moving away laterally from him mm -hmm. and his wife. And she saw it too. You know, it's a short little story, but it's, it's extremely puzzling. And it does bring to mind the camouflage, you know, the helicopter without the rotors is the same thing or no tail or whatever. It's like, I think probably one of the themes that you're going to find tonight in tonight's show is that a lot of things appear to be controlling how you're perceiving them. Yes. Or, oh. and, or attempting to and not doing it great, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I see this so much where with people trying to follow a line of logic and reason as we do, as human beings do, it's how we interpret and navigate our world. But it's usually one line of reasoning. And somebody will say, oh, well, this thing that Terry said, well, it's not really true or the logic doesn't follow scientifically or we could say like uh, for an industrial application, therefore, all of it's not true or right. bring into doubt all of it. And it's like, OK, well, that's that's reasonable. I get that. But maybe one aspect of this is true. And then you have to wonder about it's all then crazy. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. way to apply logic to it. So just my thought about that is that I know this is all fantastical and I'm not vouching or saying, oh, I know it's true because I don't. It, I'm just saying though that it's a lot of food for thought, which I think Terry would say as well. He's just from a position, just this happened. Yeah. And that's what I'm telling you. 
you don't have to buy it all. And certainly from the feedback we have gotten that some people don't, but a lot of people just, it's like, I don't know what to make of this, but it's, it's chilling. Yeah, I agree. Even these small encounters, how they affect people's lives. And like I said, we're going to get to some of these where it seems like a pretty innocuous encounter or just something weird. Yeah. But like with the stories that we've heard from Dan Pobenmeyer and Rich and Susan, that's the first thing I asked Dan when we met up. I said, hey, do you remember that story about that encounter you had with Missing Time? He's like, do I remember it? I've been thinking about it like every day. Yeah. For 20 years. Yeah. These things never leave you because it's like, there's such big head scratchers that it's become part of your life. It does. And I'm sure after a while, you probably, you start to wonder, it's like, did I imagine this? Do you know, do you even believe yourself anymore when something that fantastic happens? Well, that brings us to our next story here. This is another one that I liked because of the common ground it has with Terry's experiences with the monkeys that he talked about in part one. He talks about actually in both of the Devil's Den books. This one is case number four from Devil's Den, The Reckoning, and he titled it, Bring in the Clowns. Hello, Terry. I just listened to you being interviewed and thoroughly enjoyed it. A few points really resonated with me, and I thought I'd share my experience. Some of this sounds outrageous, I know. I grew up in a good home in the Denver area. My dad was an engineer, and my mother a CPA. My dad had some wartime experiences as an officer. He never spoke about it, even to this day, aside from some superficial acknowledgments. I'm convinced he suffered from PTSD. He would occasionally wake up screaming, like you. In your book, you talk about being afraid of the four monkeys that would visit you at night. For me, it was clowns. I was afraid they would kidnap me from my bed. These clowns seemed non-threatening at times, and I wondered if they were dreams. But I know. I think I went with them, too. We always had a strange home life in terms of presence. A strong early memory of mine is when I was about four or five and I was being tickled in bed. The thing was, there was no one visible. Around that time, I developed a tremendous fear of clowns, deformed people, and people with mental disorders such as Down syndrome. I also could not sleep with my head out of the covers and I had a fear of sickness, vomiting, and war. While the clown fear eventually faded, the fear of the handicapped, both mentally and physically, did not. My parents would have to check a store before I went in to make sure it was all clear before I could enter. Years went on and I had various anxieties and hang-ups, but then, around the age of 17 or 18, I started to develop a debilitating anxiety where I would have to pull my car over on the side of the highway, pop the hood, and pretend I was checking out an engine problem simply because I could not tolerate being trapped any longer. I could barely drive down streets with no shoulders, Planes were out of the question, the high floor of a building, classrooms where there was a lecture, movie theaters, meetings, etc. Any situation where I could not leave 100% on my own terms. I would drink a good bit in the evenings, was a chain smoker at the time. I have a tendency towards compulsion. Around the year 2012, I saw what I believe were two UFOs. I was out in the evening and for some reason I decided to look to the sky and all of the lights up there. I locked in on one. After a few seconds of staring, the stationary light just flew off at an incredible speed and then disappeared. This happened two more times. Around that same time, a friend called me saying a light in the sky was following her in the car. She's not one for UFO talk, but the light frightened her and after a while of following it, it just shot off. Around this time, I had a terrible fear of the night. 
of something coming through the door, something being there. A few years later, I was getting a better handle on my anxieties and was working on the top floor of a high-rise. The office was all windows and had beautiful views. I was looking out the window one late afternoon, and right outside the window, a few feet from me, was this silver blob. It was not a shape, so to speak. The, the best way I can describe it is that it looked as if it was made of tinfoil over putty that moved and undulated. It hovered outside the window and then slowly made its way around the corner of the building, and then, I think, it disappeared. I remember a pleasant feeling coming over me, a moment of calm instead of the usual anxiety and fear I seem to live with. Since then, aside from dreams and a lot of sleep paralysis, I had not experienced anything out of the ordinary until last year. I was walking with my daughter one Sunday. We were going to meet my wife for brunch. An Asian man stopped me and my daughter. He had a friendly disposition and was well put together, so I heard him out. He said, quote, your daughter is very special. Her eyes, it was in her eyes, end quote. Then he went on about there was, quote, many ships in the sky right now, end quote. After a minute or two, he carried on with his walk. While writing that last statement, my eyes welled up. She is special. Best regards, Roger. So I thought that was an interesting story. There were a lot of things about it. You know, we have some dear friends who suffer from severe forms of OCD, which we talked about during the Exorcist series. And I know right. for a fact that our friend that does deal with that and live with it experiences a lot of similar stuff to this person who's writing in Terry. Yeah, we're not, and we're not suggesting that no, no, our no. good friend is... <laughs> It's been abducted or anything, but... No, no, no. I'm kind of saying the other way around. I'm saying this story, when I read it, it's like, uh, this could be untreated obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, and we know the kernel of that. At least this is what I gather from our friend writing up a really thoughtful and insightful explanation article for us. Yes. And then what we've also read in medical articles about OCD, pure O OCD, all these different yes. variations in that... Often, maybe most always, they stem from some sort of traumatic event, some PTSD, usually ongoing because that's, as we were led to believe, a response. It's right. not a healthy response to deal with that, but it's a response that allows you to at least keep moving on with your life. But again, if you've got to spend three hours checking all the light switches and window sashes and all that in your house, it's not very productive. As right. our friend would say, it's like, well, that's not a great way to deal with it, but it is a way to deal with it. And so what you learn is other ways to get on with your life. Yes. But what I learned here, which was interesting going on what you, you just said, it's fascinating to me, the strange phobias. Yeah. All these different things that you don't know why you're repulsed by them or frightened of them. You just are. Right. But they don't make any sense, really, unless something weird happened. And then you wonder, like, what did happen? What did this person see? Yeah. And they don't know why. So right. it's bizarre. There's a parallel to what Terry said, where he was repulsed and afraid of store mannequins. Yeah. Is it the amorphous shape? And then you do wonder about, then this also translates into another type of experience, which is seeing these orbs outside the window. And again, there's also that, I could say injected feeling from without into the person where it's like, calm down, relax. You're yeah. Fine now. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't have this anxiety that this something horrible is going to happen to me again. 
it's just bizarre. Right. It's a very strange experience, but but ones that do have parallels to a lot of these stories that we read. So we want to welcome Terry Lovelace back to the show again. Terry, thanks so much for coming back to see us. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, you know, we really enjoy having you. You're a very easygoing guest. You're easy to talk to. And these stories are infinitely fascinating and they, they really resonate with our audience. You know, it's a real privilege that people share this stuff with me. I'm just, I'm blown away by these stories and I've done my best to kind of vet these people and find out if they're real and they're real people. Which brings us to our point, what we're doing here. You guys heard our prior episode where we talked a little bit about Terry's new book. And tonight we wanted to come back and deal with some of the stories that were sent in to him by folks that had heard his story in various places and they got in touch with him. And he he called down, I'm sure you've got thousands of stories, I can't, or I can't even imagine how many you have, Terry, that are coming to you. But you put, what, I think about 30 into Devil's Den, The Reckoning, your new book, right? Yeah, I did. I, I think it's 25. I tried okay. to distill it down to the best. I got, I've got i got over 2,000 emails since uh, March of 2018, but I had about 400 stories that were really cool. And of those, 50 are really very neat. Were there any that, for whatever reason, you that you couldn't have published them, even if the person agreed to it, that you felt like they were either too out there or had details that were too disturbing or anything like that? You know, I had... Uh, Actually, quite a few that were um, so poorly written. It was just a disjointed story that I didn't see any way to piece it together in a linear fashion to make a, a real story out of it. And there were a couple that were just maybe people that were um, perhaps having mental issues. Right. Some were just I mean, beyond credulity. You couldn't. Would, they were just way out there. And I know that my story is way out there. but Right, right. But even for you, it was too much. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's a good point, though, I'd like to discuss before we get started in that Scott and I have occasionally talked about this on the show and that we, of course, now have received thousands of emails and, and messages, DMs from all over every platform to our to our show. And there have been a few that are requests for people to come on and tell their story. And, you know, most of them we we do sense are genuine. There's been a few, though, that Scott and I discussed, like, well, what are the parameters? What sets off our alarm bells and raises the red flags? And for us, when we read the story, it's exactly what you're talking about in a different way in that some of the details are too outrageous, but not in the, not in the way that talking about aliens or possibly being abducted sounds outrageous to most, the details sound too cinematic. Yeah. There are things that happen for all these stories, and we found a baseline exactly like with yours, or if you listen to Betty and Barney Hill and their hypnosis sessions or anything that just, okay, that's outrageous, but the tone remains the same and that there are things that seem to happen that, yes, they're outrageous, but they're not the way a movie narrative would lay out. And when people try to convince us that their story is real, we just say, well, that's what would happen in a movie. And I think they're trying to convince us that, yes, this is a crazy, outrageous story. You should let me tell it. But to convince us, they think they have to add stuff to it. And I guess that's that's my point is that there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of added detail that just doesn't ring true. It's too much in a different entertainment sort of way. Is that something you notice or or how does it? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Having a story of my own, I know that there's only a limited number of facts that I can tell people. And, you know, if I want to go beyond that, 
told from my childhood. Beyond that, I had I had to use the, their other people's stories to really make a book because some people just their story just gets it just grows and that's a red flag. Right to Forrest's point, it's you know that there's something up when it feels like a script or a short story. It's like really, really refined and and has this narrative structure. It's it's one of those things that we talk about too, where these stories, especially the more true they are, they they don't necessarily have a three act structure or a five or even six act structure. They don't have when we covered Skinwalker Ranch all these years ago and talked about all the things that were happening there. People wrote in. They were like, "Well, I couldn't follow it." And it's like, "We can't follow it either." It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's got, that's like, a very relevant point here in that. The stories that are real, a lot of them with high strangeness, don't seem to make any sense when pieced together. And so when we get a story, like you said, there's a story arc, and then it's like the call's coming from the basement. You know, that kind of, sometimes there's a button like that, where there's a hook, where it's like, it's something mind-blowing, like the, uh, the Titanic story we had. But we believe that in that it's still subtle. It's a little bit vague. The things don't exactly line up or make sense, or there's no narrative to them. But again, it doesn't follow like a story where, oh, it wraps up in a neat package at the end, and then it blows up and gets crazy, and there's a resolution. And I think people generally are trained from all the media we consume that that's how a story is told. And certainly nowadays, with the, with the movies we're talking about, where it's just one digital explosion after another people tend to go over the top. And of course, nowadays it's fashionable to be hyperbolic anyway. So that's what we see. But in reading these stories, there is a theme, there's a tone, but it's cryptic, it's vague. It doesn't totally make sense, but it, there seems to be a reason behind it. But it's not a short story, as Scott said. Yeah. And I, and I feel like the other thing is, is sometimes it's just this simple little event. And you have some of those in your book, and I'm grateful that those are in there. It's not always a really large series of events. It's like this one little yeah, exactly. thing that happened, but it just makes no sense. And there's more than one witness to it. And when there's one witness, those things can still happen to those folks. But, you know, the rest of the world has a harder time believing it. Like the one of the stories we'll talk about tonight, the Christmas story. It's a couple. It happened to both of them. It's not a huge event, but it's weird enough. And I, I just, I can't wait to share these stories tonight. Mm -hmm. But speaking of which, and you getting contacted and, and what I said in part one was like, all these emails come in. We get emails when you're on, you're getting emails from all your appearances everywhere. We got an email this morning because as you and I and Forrest are recording this right now, this is the day after we released part one with you returning to talk about the reckoning. That show went up last night, less than 24 hours ago. And as I was sort of finishing up our questions here for you today and our little loose outline for our structure today, this email came in that I wanted to share with you. The sender has given us permission to share it. I thought you would want to hear it. So this is coming from Phil B. And it came in one hour ago as I'm reading this right now. Hi, Scott and Forrest. I have no recollection of ever seeing an alien or being on a ship, but was astonished when Terry Lovelace mentioned being asked to manipulate a cube telekinetically in one of his encounters. I remember in my mid-teens having a strange dream in which I was expected by an unknown and unseen intelligence to open the lid of a box suspended in a featureless void. I couldn't do this as I perceived the situation. I had no physical body and was a disembodied consciousness. I woke up in bed feeling frustrated and desperate that I couldn't open the box. And upon falling back asleep, I returned to the void with the unknown presence urging me to try again. This process repeated throughout the night, 
and I must have woken up seven or eight times feeling increasingly like I had disappointed this unseen taskmaster. A curious thing to note, during my teens, I always felt compelled to sleep with a window open, even during the dead of winter with sub-zero temperatures outside. On several occasions, I woke up to find blades of grass and or fine grains of grit in my bed despite sleeping in an upstairs room. I also used to have very ordinary and mundane dreams, which would later appear to come true. I am now in my early 50s, married, and have no more premonition dreams, although I occasionally experience moments of weird synchronicity. Perhaps my unseen testers found me disappointingly untalented and dropped me from their program, exclamation point. Signed, Phil, and he's from the UK. So I wanted to get your reaction. How does that make you feel, that email? That's amazing. People who've been had dreams or experiences where they were in an odd situation and they were asked by a taskmaster to manipulate something, I've had probably 20 people write to me and say they've had these experiences, including, I'll mention her name because she, she just wrote an excellent book, Deb Cobble who you may know. Know her name, have not talked to her, but yes. Oh, absolutely. you should talk to her. She's very interesting. Yeah, uh-huh. she was one of Bud Hopkins' patients, clients, right. whatever the word is. We were at, a, at UFO Congress. We were at a dinner, and we're sitting next to one another. And she told me about, she had this memory of being aboard the ship and sitting cross-legged on the floor and had this, uh, I think hers was a pyramid. Mine was a cube in front of her and was told to move it with her mind. And I just about fell out of my chair because no, I had never, didn't have a clue anyone else had ever had such an experience. I think you mentioned that once before. And have you gotten emails from, you just said, what did you say you've heard from more than a dozen people or a couple dozen people? Yeah, probably 20. Yeah. Maybe more. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And they're from all walks of life, ages, geographic locations. The incidents mostly happen to people in their childhood or, or adolescence. Right. Well, that's an interesting point. This is something I asked you in our interview because that intrigued me reading about that passage of what is the purpose of that? Obviously, these aren't entities that goof around doing silly stuff. It would be like psychologists performing a simple test. Press this red or green button, you get a marshmallow, and usually it's it's kids, and you wonder if it's cognitive psychic testing And one aspect that I think Scott and I, as we've learned more about the field of UFOs and the genre, is that it may all boil down to a tremendous psychic connection and that there is a consciousness and psychic connection to the phenomenon. And it's not just nuts and bolts. And also, I asked you about the reward. If you completed a task while aboard, a slide went up and it seemed like to be just dark, empty space, right? Yeah. I mean, as a child, I thought I was at planetarium or Christmas mm-hmm. lights or something. You know, they didn't they didn't twinkle like stars because I think we were outside the atmosphere. Right. Amazing. Well, anyway, I just I thought that was an interesting email. I also thought it was a strangely synchronous event to have it come in in the moments leading up to when we were supposed to talk today. So the reason that we wanted to have you back, Terry, as we said at the top of the show today, was to share some of these stories from your book, some of the more compelling ones and interesting ones, and talk to you a little bit about them in person. We picked some out that we wanted to get in. We are going to read a few of them. We'd like also, though, we'd be very honored if you would read some of them. Then maybe we can talk about them after you've shared them with our audience. Does that sound okay to you? Oh, I'd be, I'd be honored. It's a great privilege to share these stories that people have sent to me. 
These are folks that I vetted as well as possible, spoke with by phone, met in person. They're just very credible, believable people. In terms of your vetting process and that sort of thing, why don't you remind people a little bit about your background and what you had done professionally? Oh, sure. Just briefly. Yeah, I spent six years in the United States Air Force from 73 to 79. I have an undergraduate degree in psychology and a law degree from Western Michigan and made my career in the law, first in private practice. And then I was appointed as an assistant attorney general for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa. And then later, uh, an appointment to the state of Vermont, same job. Finished my professional career in 2012. Consider myself to be kind of retired. You know, I don't have a nine to five job, but I like to write. I started this in 2018 and it's just exploded. I'm very happy with it. So that's, that's my background. The reason I wanted you to share that is because I think people need to understand that when you say you're vetting people and you're trying to make sure that these stories are real, you have a measured and intelligent approach to that and, and experience with trying to determine whether or not people are telling the truth in your professional career. Yeah, it's a very important skill to have. It absolutely is, especially considering where you're at now and the kinds of things that you're coming across. I just want to say that these aren't all terrible. Sometimes they're kind of amusing and friendly. Right. As we're about to find out with our next story from Johannesburg, South Africa. Strangers in the Pasture from Byron, Johannesburg, South Africa. Dear Mr. Lovelace, I'm a 34-year-old mechanic in Johannesburg. Actually, we're in a small hamlet in the country a bit outside the city. The area is mostly ranchers who did business with my father before me. Farming machinery and trucks are the bulk of our business, but we can fix about anything mechanical. We know most everyone. It is a family business begun by my dad in the 60s. It's me and my aunt and uncle now. We own a cottage attached to the shop and we have a little land to grow our vegetables. Now, this is hard to imagine, but I have no reason to make it up. I experienced it in 2014, and my memory is clear, and there is nothing wrong with my mind or my eyesight. Late after the harvest that year, an old customer rang my mobile for some help. He was stuck in his field with a broken-down tractor. I'd worked on it before and was familiar with the machine. He broke a belt and asked me to bring another one around to get him running. Easy job. I had the part, so I grabbed my tools and drove over. I found him at the far south side of his field, about two kilometers from the house, right where he said he'd be. His name was Duncan. He's passed on, so I don't think he'd mind if I use his name. Duncan was an older gent, but stout and hardworking. When I parked my truck, I could see Duncan was in a state. I told him to relax, but I'd have him on his way before long. But it wasn't his tractor that had him worked up. There was a tree line on the south end of Duncan's property that marked the boundary separating his property from his neighbors. Everyone is friendly, so it wasn't a neighborly quarrel. I was confused. He asked me to follow him without an explanation. As I followed him through the trees, he advised me to be quiet. I had a firearm on my hip. Duncan carried his in his hand. That was a little odd, so I drew mine as well. Duncan was not the kind of man to draw his sidearm unless he suspected it might be needed. I was expecting trouble, but still had no idea what the devil could be so dangerous. Troublemakers were the only thing I could think of. Just opposite the trees in the middle of Duncan's neighbor's sheep pasture, there were four silver objects about 50 meters away. It was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. 
My first thought was somebody was making a movie. I looked for cameras and there were none. It was just us and these four things. They were flat on the bottom, round on the top like half a sphere, and about as big as my Range Rover. They were all spinning clockways at the same time and were about six feet above the pasture, casting long shadows eastward in the afternoon sun. There was no noise at all. They glinted in the sun like polished aluminum. I saw no doors or windows, and there were no wheels or legs underneath that we could see. They frightened me. I had to resist the urge to run back to the truck and take off, but I didn't want to alarm Duncan, who was dealing with heart problems. Besides, there had to be a logical explanation for these things. I asked Duncan, how did you find these on the other side of the trees? They flew right over me while I was removing that busted belt, he said. He paused for a moment. He knew I had more questions. Duncan continued. I noticed their shadow moving across the ground from the corner of my eye and looked up. They were no higher than my barn when I first saw them, and they never make a sound. All four were grouped in a diamond-like formation, like you see them now. They passed over me and then dropped low over the trees and into the pasture, still spinning like tops. They haven't moved since. What the hell are they? My mind was racing for a sane explanation. They could be satellites or military craft of some kind. They could be goddamn spaceships too, suggested Duncan in a whisper. No way in hell, Duncan. Whatever they are, there's a sober explanation. I say we walk over there and check them out. I'll show you that they're not from outer space. They're from the States or Russia, maybe China, but there's no such thing as spaceships, I replied with authority. I'm not getting close to them. I'm staying in this thicket. You go over and I'll cover you, suggested Duncan, holding up his pistol. Cover me? Are you mad? You'll shoot me in my arse, you fool. Put your pistol away. I'll do the same and walk over to look at them friendly-like, I said. If you get into trouble, run like hell and we'll make it to your lorry, Duncan advised. With more than a little false bravado, I strolled over there as casual as you please. The closer I got, I could hear a mechanical whining noise and felt the hair in my arms stand up. Whatever these things were, they were generating a magnetic field. I could feel it. The tall grass underneath the things had matted down and twirled together to form a pattern, like a crop circle. I wondered, am I watching these things make crop circles? Duncan became impatient with me. He yelled for me to come back. Instead, I decided to greet them. Looking at the one closest to me, I yelled, Aita, is anyone there? We're friends. To my surprise, the thing slowed its rotation and stopped dead still. The other three continued to spin and never moved. Then it lowered itself almost all the way to the ground but didn't set down. I still didn't see any seams, doors, or joints of any kind. Just a dome of highly polished metal of some kind. Now, this is where things become harder to believe. An arch-shaped portal opened on the side facing me. It opened like a camera lens expanding to make a two-meter-tall doorway in an instant. There, inside this thing, stood a man in a silver suit and boots. He stood almost two meters tall and filled the doorway. His facial features were human, hairless, and maybe of the Mongolian race. He never smiled or changed his facial expression, but I heard him speak by thought transference. I could hear him in my head. All fear had left me, 
and I was thrilled because I knew I was witnessing something profound. Never changing his facial expression or talking from his mouth, he asked me, Do you have a wife and children? His tone seemed friendly enough, but his questions seemed a tad forward. Speaking aloud, I politely told him, No, and asked, Where do you come from? He replied immediately, We come from a place near the star system you call Orion. We are not here to harm or to help you. We are here to observe. We need to make some repairs. We will be on our way soon, he said, adding, We make an apology for our intrusion. I assured him, No worries. Take as long as you need. It seemed appropriate to ask. I know how to repair machinery. Can I help you? I strained my eyes to see what was behind him inside his vehicle, but the opening was small and the interior was illuminated, so I saw him mostly in profile and nothing behind him. He knew what I was thinking. He offered, Would you like to step inside and see our device? I felt like a child begging permission. All I could say was, Yes, please, but I was compelled to add, I'm concerned about my friend's well-being. He will worry about me if I go inside with you. He might panic. I fear his heart might fail him. The visitor said, I understand. Go back to your friend because he is very afraid. Tell him we caused you no harm. Tell no one. And with that, the door closed in the same fashion that it had opened. I stepped back a few meters and it resumed rotating. Walking mostly backward, I rejoined Duncan, who was eager to hear the story and confirm I was not harmed. Duncan shook my hand and we both turned to watch them from the trees. He eagerly asked, What did he say to you? Was he friendly? I assured Duncan, He was a gentleman. He apologized for the trespass and said they needed to make repairs. He knew you were afraid and I should return and tell you he didn't hurt me. They come from Orion somewhere and said they were watching us. He also said to tell no one. Duncan had pulled out a small amber pill bottle and tossed a couple tiny pills in his mouth. I assumed it was heart medicine. I asked if he was okay and he nodded. He was very kind to me. He even invited me inside, I said proudly. I was worried. I'm, I'm glad you didn't go, Duncan said with relief. They took you. What would I tell your aunt and uncle? What would become of you? I reassured him everything was all right and we were in no danger. Duncan seemed winded. He paused to take a deep breath and said, He told us to tell no one? Who the hell would believe us? We'd be a joke and the boys would never let us live it down. I say we tell no one, not the constable, not your uncle, and I'll not tell Romina, no one. I agreed. It's a pack then, and we'll tell no one. I was proud of meeting a spaceman and bragged to my friend, Can you believe it? He invited me inside for a visit to see their machine. Just as I finished my sentence, we saw all four of these half-dome things slowly rise to about 30 meters and fly away at great speed. We were awestruck by their speed and stood in silence for a few minutes, trying to grasp what had just happened to us. Duncan and I both had mobile phones, but neither of us thought to take a photograph. That was hard to believe too, but it never entered our minds. We followed the stranger's advice and never told anyone what happened that afternoon. We knew we had seen something not of this world. Duncan claimed he regretted not going with me to see them up close. I don't think his heart could have taken it. I fixed his tractor in short order and we parted. Over the next few years, Duncan and I would review the experience over a glass of whiskey when we could if we were someplace private. 
Like two old war mates, we went over every little detail of our adventure, recalling every second. Duncan passed away suddenly in 2017 of a heart ailment. He lived to see 82. You're the first soul I've shared this story with, Mr. Lovelace. Please keep it true if you put it in your book. There is an interesting addendum to this story. Duncan's neighbor, Weston, came around to the shop and said he found crop circles in his pasture. He showed me the photographs. They were not the best quality, and I doubt anyone took them seriously. I pretended to be amazed. He appreciated that I was interested, and I confirmed, those look like real crop circles to me. Eight months later, well into the new season, he came by again and asked, Remember those crop circles? Well, that crop circle nearest to Duncan's land is just a round patch of dirt now. Nothing will grow there. Not a weed, not a blade of grass. No ants or weevils either. I tossed a piece of mutton in the center and even the flies want no part of it. I told him that was amazing, adding too, I wish I'd seen whatever did this to your pasture. After two years, the grass slowly returned and has almost covered the bare spot. I never had any dreams about it, but I dream about Duncan a lot. Yours respectfully, Byron. Okay, so this story, this is also one of my favorites. I have three or four favorites in the book here. But this one is so intense. I really like the real down-to-earth nature of it and the relationship between the main character, which I don't even know if his name's ever said, and his friend Duncan. But, you know, going out to this field and the whole experience with these craft it's just mind-blowing. So how did this came to you by email, this one? It did. Uh, the guy came in by email and uh, said he had an amazing story he wanted to share. He told me just a sliver of the story, and I emailed him back, and I said, that's a, I called the guy Byron, I think, in the uh -huh. book, and his friend Duncan. And uh, I said, please, tell me more. You know, I, I, can you tell me the whole story? And he said, sure. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because uh, – his English was half, it had that African influence mm -hmm. to it. So, you know, <laughs> yes. you know, like instead of yeah. using the word uh, telepathically, he said he used thought transference. Thought transference was the phrase he used instead of telepathically. A couple other things, too. Yeah, we had to look up the greeting, Haita or Haita, H-E-I-T-A. Yeah, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. So, yeah, when he talks about the aperture and this thing coming out, there's a character that we have referred to on our show before from our Mothman series, one of our very early series. And it's one that it was just like a little side story in John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, A True Story. He was talking about all the high strangeness that was going on, his term that he coined, that was going on in the Ohio River Valley at the time that the Mothman was appearing in and around Point Pleasant there and Gallipolis. And the there was a, a story of a woman who saw a UFO over a playground. And I'm actually going to read this, just this little paragraph right here, okay? This is from uh, chapter four of his book, The Mothman Prophecies, a true story. Chapter four is called Take the Train. This is on the second page of that chapter, at least on my Kindle edition. In March 1966, uh, keeping in mind this book was published in 76, so it might not be fully politically correct for these days. In March 1966, a shapely housewife, whom I will call Mrs. Kelly because she asked that her name be withheld, was waiting in her car for her children near the Point Pleasant School when she saw an unbelievable apparition low in the sky. It looked like a glistening metal disc and was hovering directly above the school playground. A door-like aperture was open at its rim, and there was a man standing outside. He was not standing in the doorway. He was standing outside the object in midair. 
he wore a silvery, skin-tight costume and had very long silvery hair. He was looking down into the schoolyard intently. All right, so there was, there was no communication exchange between them, but the door, again, was described as an aperture, which I thought was interesting in Byron and Duncan's case. It's an aperture, and it's something that's come up before in other stories, too, that opens up like a camera aperture that's controlling your f-stop, which is fascinating to me because... And then the other thing is the silver suit. Now, in, in the story that, that Byron shared, the entity was hairless, and this one had long hair, but they clearly they had the same tailor, and they and their ships came from the same shipyard. I mean, it's just it's fascinating to me. And that was 1976, and I, I get the feeling that Byron's story is more recent. I also got the feeling from Byron's story that he was maybe considerably younger than Duncan. Oh, yes. Yeah, but they were friends and and that sort of thing. So that just really caught my eye. I mean, the Disco Wizard is pra- we call that guy the Disco Wizard from the Mothman story because you know the silver suit and the long white white beard. He's practically a mascot of our show. So when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, it must be friends of his. Yeah. It's just crazy that, so that common ground. And I love too, that again, here we are with the nuts and bolts thing, like Forrest has brought up, there was a mechanical whining sound associated with the craft. And that's interesting to me too, because you get these other craft that make no noise at all. People see it's a big, huge thing. It's floating. It went over. It makes not a sound. And then you get these other ones that are very mechanical in nature, almost like a Going back to our diner references earlier, like a fifty-seven Bel Air, you know. So yeah, the the, uh, the old lantern that Indrid Cold apparently Cole came stepped out of, out of with yeah. a squeaky car door with a clunk, yeah. and maybe that's we've speculated as well as others that maybe Woody Derenberger, that's what he could deal with in his mind, and that was the image projected, or that's that's the narrative or the images that Woody would have been more comfortable with. It didn't really look like that, but that's how he interpreted it, or that's how his mind at the time did this outrageous event. But the person looked real. I mean, he had this incredible wide smile, and he seemed slightly off in that uncanny valley way, but for all intents and purposes, seemed pretty normal and human. What's interesting about this case, though, is that there is also a human aspect in that Byron described him, I think, as being... Mongolian looking? Yeah, he or, said yes. he appeared to be of the Mongolian race, his words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. But mostly, yeah, like humanoid, nothing, uh, <laughs> giant eyes or yeah. gray skin. It seemed to be fairly normal, and their interaction was pretty normal. And then the other thing that we liked about the story, I think you do too, is that it doesn't end badly or very negatively. Unlike the story about the, the firefighters out on a javelina hunt, that could be a play in that it's a lot about that story. It's not about the fantastical mechanical things or, or lights and spaceships and operating theaters. That story to me really hit in that it's about the relationships between all of them and how they deteriorated and how the, the themes of nobody wanting to talk about it afterwards, about anger, about this kind of violation, the helplessness and how they all deal with it differently. Like I said, that could be a dramatic stage play of just just their relationships and how they all deal with it. But again, it rings true in that it didn't get fantastical with lasers shooting about and, and all this other stuff. It's It's really kind of a simple story with so many mysteries to it. And it may have started happening. This is the other thing that reminded me of your story, Terry, in 76 or 74. The experience may have started way before the trip in that their friend Tom suddenly felt like he didn't want to go. Right. It just, it didn't feel right about it. 
maybe like he was instructed to stay behind, where the rest of them were compelled to go. And the strange thing's happening, Mel disappearing before they really saw the lights, I think, in the, in the brush. A lot of these things were happening even before they recognized there was an encounter of maybe just people in the woods with flashlights. I like, you know, the firefighter story because everything seems so normal. And he used that sentence, this is where things got weird. And things, multiple things are happening at the same time. I'm not sure I conveyed that as accurately as I could have, but the lights are there, you know, Garrett announces, boys, we got company. Yeah. Shots in the air and Billy coming out of the screen door, you know, we lost Bell. Yeah. So much going on at the same time. That's just kind of the way it seems to happen, you know? Yeah. The other thing about this story with Byron and Duncan is the whole, you want to get in my van? Can you help me put this chair in my van? Like, I don't know if I'd be going in there to look oh, under the hood. Yeah. yeah. Fine. No, I don't know about that. And again, your friend is afraid. Tell him we didn't hurt you. You know, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We didn't stick the thing up your nose and cause your life to fall apart. So it's like... But he was telling the truth. That's that's the difference here in that he he didn't... Yeah, but that might have just been luck of the draw. You know? (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. I think there's a cool naivety naivete to his story where he's like, you know, can't I come in and give you guys a hand? I know a little about machinery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah, right. I know, I know. It's like, is it, what, what, what you got in here? Uh, nuclear fusion? <laughs> I can, I just fixed that tractor. So, yeah, hey, things all, all operate in the same principle. But no, taking the guy's statement, and, and we often, maybe we overanalyze statements made from yeah. non-human or extra off-world sources in taking the wording and what does it mean? And in this case, him saying, tell your friend that we didn't hurt you. You shouldn't be afraid. Obviously, he can sense that he's afraid, but it sounds like they've had experience with this before with humans and that, geez, they all freak out and then they're telling each other that we probed them and hurt them. We didn't do that. Or maybe they did, but they 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 seem to be knowledgeable that that's the common perception that we come down here and we hurt you folks but tell them we didn't do that it's like well why would he care what their reputation is <laughs> like, and, and he even says pardon the trespass you know yeah <laughs> right so again it's it's like all of us humans some are some are good some are bad some are neutral most of the ones i we hear about are, are a weird neutral aspect but going back to the 50s and the, the space brothers and maybe the Nordics and this and that, they're a lot more friendly. They want to help us. And then there's some in the middle that uh, like, yeah, we're doing our own thing. And there's some that, no, we're, we're here to hurt you. And yeah, those are the ones that scare people. But in this story, no, I love, love this story in that it all turns out okay. They talked about it. That's the difference. Years after, they kept discussing it as one of the most incredible things that ever happened to them. Both. Yeah, he said we were like two old war mates, you know, get together for yeah. a whiskey and talk about it whenever we could. Right. Right. And yeah, it was a, it's a different thing. The band didn't break up in this case, but it wasn't lost on me. Like when, when Byron said, well, Duncan had his weapon drawn. He had his firearm out and he's like, he doesn't draw that unless he thinks he's going to have to use it. And <laughs> yeah. so then I drew mine and you could just imagine this panic in the approach. Oh yeah. I didn't put it in the book, but in the email, he said, put that damn thing away. You're going to shoot me in the arse, you fool. Oh no, that is <laughs> in the book. That That's in, in the there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a LOL I mean, It's moment. like a comedy film of them trying to deal with it. But I also thought it was interesting, the way that Duncan saw it, or initially saw the craft, was the shadows passed over. Mm-hmm. And he looked up, and there they were. Yeah. So Somebody wrote to me and said that there were very similar crafts reported 
bullet-shaped silver flying in a, in a diamond-shaped configuration in Canada somewhere. Hmm. Huh. That's interesting. Well, it makes you wonder if like the the small shapes that you see, even in the new Skinwalker Ranch series that are so high up in the air that you can't really make out what they are, if you got up close to them, it makes you wonder if they're in the same class, you know? Yeah. Hi, I'm Nicholas Baguki, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now let's get back to the show. Well, Terry, we were thinking that maybe now you could start the three stories that you were going to share with our listeners tonight. And we were thinking maybe the first one, a good first one would be the Christmas store story. Oh, sure. I'd love to. This is actually one of my uh, one of my favorite, if not the favorite story. This is a 67-year-old woman from Henderson, Nevada, who contacted me, pardon me, 76-year-old widow, who we spoke on the phone. And uh, she was very articulate. She has a degree in, in fine arts or something, does charity work on a regular basis. I asked her, well, you know, what motivated you to call, to contact me? And she says, well, you know, I'm 76 years old. I'm not going to live forever. And she says, I want somebody to preserve my story. And I said, well, I appreciate that very much. And then she got a little bit defensive and she says, you know, 76-year-old women don't make up fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. <laughs> you know what? I, I believe you. I do believe her. Okay, so this is uh, the Christmas story. She has to be called Olivia from Henderson, Nevada. Dear Mr. Lovelace, I am a 76-year-old widow originally from Reno, Nevada. I listened to your audiobook and decided to tell you about an experience my late husband and I had on a weekend trip from Las Vegas to Reno in 1968. My late husband was a physician, a nephrologist or kidney doctor. I was a housewife and never worked outside the home. We never had children, but we had an active social life. We used to enjoy the drive from Vegas to Reno to visit my sister and our friend who owned a successful automobile business there. We had a Peugeot automobile we bought in France on an anniversary trip and had shipped back stateside. It was my late husband's toy. Paul loved that car because it was just unusual. It was also wonderfully comfortable for long trips. About once a month, we would make the drive to Reno to visit our friends and enjoy a lovely weekend. This weekend in March 1968 would be the most unusual trip we would ever make to Reno. We usually left no later than 3 o'clock p.m. to avoid traffic, but Paul was tied up at the hospital until 6 p.m. We considered canceling our trip, but we had a room reserved and really wanted to make this trip. Paul called the hotel and told them we would be checking in late. We could sleep in the next morning, so the late start wouldn't be a big deal. Back in 68, it was two-lane blacktop for the whole 240-mile trip. We knew we'd be worn out when we got there, but it wasn't a concern. Usually, we would stop for gas in the little town of Tonopah, off the highway that marked about the halfway point to Reno. They had a nice diner there called the Stagecoach or something similar. The sun had just set, and we decided to stay for dinner and coffee, as well as fuel. There was not much commerce in Tunapa back then. The drive was mostly desert, a few small towns separated by many miles of road. 
It's different now, and there's a nice highway too. We had a good meal, and we're back on the road within an hour. As we were leaving the city limits headed for Reno, Paul and I saw a new business. It was, of all things, a Christmas store. This was 1968, and I can't ever recall seeing an entire store devoted to the holiday. The building sat back from the road a bit and was lit up inside with bright lights that came streaming out of every window. There was a porch that stretched across the front of the store with Christmas lights of all shapes, sizes, and colors draped across the front of the building. Some of the lights twinkled, some flashed, others did not. It really caught our attention. We both were certain it had not been there a month ago when we made our last trip, but we usually passed through Tonopah before dark and could have just missed it. We agreed it was odd to have a Christmas store in a remote location and open for business in March. I asked Paul to please stop since they appeared to be open, but we saw no cars. We could see shadows of movement inside. Paul slowed down, but we couldn't find a place to pull into a parking lot. It was strange. We never saw a parking lot. It was just sand in front of this new building. It made no sense to complete the building before installing a point of egress. There was no road behind the building either. We assumed the place must still be under construction. I remembered it being a brick structure. Paul thought it was wooden, built from rustic barn wood. We could not agree on a couple points, but paid it no mind. We both agreed that the store was brightly lit up inside and out. Paul sped up and pulled onto the highway to resume our trip north. We usually chatted for the entire drive, but this trip, I felt sleepy. Neither of us were talkative. I reclined my seat and slept until we reached Reno city limits. I had eaten a heavy meal and I attributed that to my drowsiness. We checked in at our hotel and never bothered to unpack or hang our things up so they wouldn't wrinkle. Instead, we went directly to bed and sleep. Uncharacteristically, we slept for 10 hours before our friends woke us up with a phone call. The rest of the trip was routine. We had a good time, and by Monday morning, we were ready to head home. On our way back, I asked Paul to keep an eye out for that peculiar Christmas store when we got close to Tonopah. We didn't have time to stop, but we wanted to see it in the daylight. It wasn't there. We passed the spot where we were certain we saw it on the way up, but there was nothing there but sand and sagebrush. We continued home, and I think we both felt frustrated that we couldn't find it again, but we dismissed it as a simple oversight. Surely we overlooked it and drove past it. A week later, I brought it up at dinner. Paul admitted it had been on his mind for some reason. I suggested we take a quick drive to Tonopah and look for it. We agreed to make the trip the following weekend. We got up early Saturday and made the drive to have lunch and find the Christmas store again. It felt like a fun adventure. We reached the city limits and drove through town looking, but we never found it. We drove through town twice and still couldn't find it. We had lunch at the stagecoach and I asked the hostess when did he build a Christmas store in Tonopah? What Christmas store, she asked. 
She looked at me like I was crazy. I wasn't confused. We knew what we saw. She politely insisted there were no new stores in Tunapa. The hostess told us the owner here is the president of the town's chamber of commerce. If anybody knows about a new retail store in town, he'd be the man she offered to have him speak with us. Mr. Yang introduced himself and asked if he could join us. We insisted. He pulled up a chair to our table and was very gracious. He gave us a, a brief but fascinating history of the town, but he was courteously adamant that there were no new commercial structures built and no new businesses in town. I can still see that building in my mind. We both saw the same thing. We saw it in Tonopah, 10 minutes after leaving the restaurant. There was no uncertainty about the location. Afterward, Paul became indifferent and rightly pointed out that we had other things to worry about. We never really discussed it again. I regret that. I've seen a lot in 76 years, but those two minutes when we drove past the Christmas store is as fresh in my memory as if it happened yesterday. Analysis. Olivia's case is striking in that she and her husband both witnessed something strange. They both agreed on what they saw, mostly. There were subtle differences, but they believe they were only in front of the store for two minutes as they drove by. The question remains, what did they see? I don't think it was a retail store. I don't think what they saw was even terrestrial. I believe what they recall is a screen memory that disguised the true nature of what they witnessed. Olivia said she would rather speak by telephone than exchange emails. I called her. After some initial pleasantries, I candidly asked, Olivia, do you think what you saw could have been a spaceship? Do you believe you and your husband's perception was somehow being manipulated from inside that store? She replied with a nervous chuckle, that's silly. Then she paused, but I can't rule it out either. That makes as much sense as anything else. I admit that I entertained that thought over the years, but I try not to dwell on it. It was a cute little store. I'd like to remember it at that, even if it was a mirage or something from another world. I asked her if she thought they may have experienced missing time during that leg of the Reno trip while she slept. She was unsure, but said she'd considered it. She replied with a question, how would one know? Then added, it was very uncommon for me to sleep in the car. If we did lose time, I don't think it was hours like you lost on your motorcycle ride. No, I don't think anything happened between Tonopah and Reno. Although, I have always questioned those couple minutes between Paul slowing down and then accelerating again as we rolled past when we failed to find the driveway. Do you think it's possible you stopped at the store for a time and just can't remember, I asked. She admitted, maybe we did stop for a while. Maybe all we can remember is slowing down and speeding away and the in-between was lost to us. Paul and I both were mildly out of sorts for the next 24 hours. That makes me feel strongly that something happened. Paul and I both had bad dreams about the little Christmas store for the rest of our lives. Never on the same night, 
and no more than a couple a year. The whole incident was dark and creepy in a way that would give Lovecraft nightmares. Do you still have nightmares about the incident, I asked? I still have strange dreams on occasion. It's usually because the content of the dream is always the same. It's just Paul pulling onto the shoulder and stopping the car to look at the Christmas store. And both of us are mesmerized by the light show. I can never clearly remember anything other than stopping and just staring at the building from the shoulder of the road for a few seconds, and then Paul driving away. I stared at the thing, but I can't sharply focus on it in my memory. In my dream, it is always like looking through a pair of eyeglasses with oil or something rubbed onto the lenses or through eyeglasses of the wrong prescription and everything is blurry. Then I become terrified for some reason and wake up feeling disturbed. Paul's nightmares were similar, but he rarely discussed them because they faded so quickly. But I believe he wanted to avoid the topic. Sadly, Paul passed away in 1983. I thanked Olivia for her story. It reminds me so much of Betty and Barney Hill. I wish she and Paul had thought to draw a picture with pen and paper separately and compare them immediately afterward. I suggested she read Betty and Barney Hill's story. I made a couple of things I wanted to ask you about this one, but one in particular that I only just caught now when you were reading it was in the way that the story's told, she wanted to stop, but they didn't stop. They couldn't find the parking lot. They didn't. St- she doesn't say in the story that they stopped on the shoulder and looked at it, right? No, she doesn't say that. But she, she dreamt that they did that. She implies that that's what happened and says that, you know, maybe we did. Maybe we, you know, maybe we, we, right. we pulled off, but we lost what's in the middle. Right. So she was pulling off and pulling back on. We had a, a missing time story several shows uh, a while ago, uh, maybe two years ago. We had a gentleman on. His name's Dan Pavenmeyer. He's actually the co-creator of the Disney animated show called Phineas and Ferb. Which yeah, is we brought this show. up to Terry before. Yeah, uh, I think we did. <laughs> I think his, his eyebrows raised about certain details. Yeah. Yeah, he had the same kind of thing where he slowed down and looked at something weird and then sped up. And And we've heard that before in other stories too. And that always does seem to have a kind of missing time component to it if it's there. And it's interesting for me as a, as a former video and film editor for almost two decades, it's like, that's an edit. It's been edited. That's it. Yeah. You take this out here, take it out there, crossfade it. You know, if you can't solve it, dissolve it. And I mean, that's (laughs) like, it seems like that surrounds missing time. But Terry, to be clear, they never remember ever going inside the store. Oh no, never. Yeah. All they remember is pulling off onto the shoulder and the things she's not sure of did we actually stop for a minute? Because she says, you know, right, we, right. we paused to watch it. But, you know, she says they, she thought they pulled over, kind of rolled past looking for a, uh, a driveway. They didn't find one. They could see there was no parking lot and then pulled back on. But now, she, you know, when I talked to her, she questions, did we stop? Could we have stopped for a few minutes? There's two other telling things for me about the story. One is the extreme fatigue they experienced afterwards, sleeping for 10 hours. That's unusual if it's just, even with people with missing time stories or let's say a time slip, which is different. You you may have faded into another existence for a little bit. That's not a side effect I usually hear about. The second thing is that I think is really telling are all the negative 
nightmares or at least just bad feelings and bad dreams about that one momentary experience, which should be pleasant. Yeah. It's a Christmas store. You know, what should be terrifying about that? Well, what's terrifying about it, from her words, there were two things. And that is in her nightmares, she saw that motion in shadows. I probably should have been more clear about that in the book. Mm. In the light lighting behind the uh, store. The second major thing that makes it so creepy and makes it worthy of a nightmare is they can't find the thing. Right. Let's talk about this. And maybe you can tell me a little bit or explain this a little bit, especially with your education. A screen memory. What exactly is that? And how is that explained in psychology in general? Is it is it just designed to protect you? Does this feel like a manipulation? Because there's other stories in your book, one we're going to hear later, that it's the same kind of thing. The, the, the people that experienced it, not quite sure what they're looking at. And we hear this all the time across the board, even outside of experiences with UAP or UFOs. This seems to happen a lot where people look back and they think, oh, well, you know, yeah, I saw it's even Sam the Sandown Clown. I don't know if you know that story, but it's like the strangest thing, the strangest encounter with this really bizarre being where it's almost like this weird sort of camouflage, like it's a cloak that's designed to, it's a mental cloak in a way that it doesn't let you see what you saw. So I guess my question is, is that a manipulation or is that your inability to comprehend what you're looking at? Or is it a manipulation? Because the more that I hear the stories, the more it feels like a manipulation to me. I think it is a manipulation. It was striking to me that most of the people that wrote to me were between the ages of 40 and 80, with the median being about 60. I think that they can manipulate your memory as a child, you know, as a young adult. But I don't think that they have the ability to completely wipe the slate clean. I think our psyche somehow, it's going to seep through from the subconscious to the conscious and then we'll remember it, you know, maybe not as a clear linear memory, but bits and pieces and flashes are going to come back. I think that that's what creates the nightmares. And again, that's just conjecture on my part, but that's what I think. I mean, that's an interesting concept and way to look at it is that as powerful as this force is, these beings are, their technology being this advanced, they have a lot of control and power, but not totally. The human consciousness or subconsciousness and unconsciousness is more powerful than them in some ways. They're not 100% effective in their wiping of memories. Now, this story here, though, is one that we've come across that sounds like it was much more effective because there really isn't any other memories coming to the surface that are usually part of those telltale signs other than just a negative dream of them being outside. So they got close, but they're not 100% perfect. And there's other things where they're not 100% perfect, or maybe they just don't care, but it's like your socks being on sideways when you woke up in the tent, your boots being undone, Betty Hill's dress being on backwards. It's like, yeah, just, just, just get it together, get them off the ship. <laughs> it's like, they're just, let's get out of here. They're not, and maybe they don't care, but it just seems like they'd be a little less sloppy to me. <laughs> you know, it raises an ethical question in my mind, and that is, is it ethical to mess with somebody, to physically hurt them when they obviously have the ability to anesthetize us? Right. And think, okay, you know, well, we've hurt you, but now we're going to erase that memory and that makes it all okay. Yeah. That is one comment that I think Rich Haddam relayed to us in, in another story uh, about an abduction where, you know, the person was screaming on the table and basically the, the mental telepathy that came through them is like, well, you're not going to remember this. Why are you screaming? Why are you so afraid? 
Don't worry about it. We're going to make you forget this. Like, they couldn't understand that. Like, yes, but this moment here is awful and it's painful. But to them, it's like, well, if we erase your memory, it's fine, right? We're you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah. They don't line up with our thinking at all or, or not much or they just don't care. Yeah, well, that blows my mind because I, I would think that if a society is going to advance that, you know, maybe their ethics and their way of treating one another would rise proportionately. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe that's not. And then quickly, I just want to relay this. I'll throw it back to Scott here. This story, the setup and the the theme and premise of it reminds me a lot of a Jim Harold's Campfire podcast story that where listeners send in, they will record uh, segments of their strange experiences, and he will use two or three of them per episode. This was years and years ago. Scott will remember one of these because this is the one that kind of freaked me out. But one that's more humorous is a similar setup where a couple are on a road trip, not somewhere totally unfamiliar to them, but I think they, uh, they were passing by and they see this, this 50s diner. Well, it's, it's lunchtime. Let's pull over, take a rest, get some lunch. That looks like a really fun place. It's all, you know, there's vintage Bel Air Chevys in the parking lot. All the cars look vintage, like, wow, they really went all out. And so they, they pull over and they go in and wow, everyone here is really dressed up. There was an old restaurant chain called Ed DeBevix here in LA. And I, I think they were originally out of Chicago. Yes, where, with actors. With actors, but they they played it up. They were all real campy. Everyone had a character. One guy was the greaser. You had the poodle skirt gal. Oh, and you, you had Raiders. real celebrities too, didn't you? It was like Marilyn Monroe and JFK. Yes. And yeah. So they really played up that angle. This couple though, that goes in, they were just like, wow, these guys are really playing this to the hilt. I mean, it's, you know, the guys look, everything looks like it's from the, uh, you know, the mid to late fifties or early sixties. All the decor is just spot on. And here's what I find amazing. If you believe all aspects of the story, and, and I'm going to just because I because I like it, it also not only is it fun, but just to see if there's any kind of commonalities and differences here between this story and the one we just heard about the Christmas store, in that they order lunch. They ate food there. And here's the other thing, which also ties in with another, I guess, time slip story. They tried to talk to people like the the waiter came by and the bus boys came by and they they took the order. They tried to talk to them, but nobody spoke to them and they weren't exceptionally friendly either. They just kind of they acknowledged them there. They didn't really say anything back. They just like, OK, they ate their lunch and then they left. And they're like, well, that was that was really fun. But like the wait staff, are, they just seem very neutral, you know, like not <laughs> not mean and not friendly, just very neutral. So, of course, as the story goes, they kind of forgot about their experience. They didn't experience any other side effects, according to the telling that I heard, you know, extreme fatigue or tiredness or missing time. But they came back on another road trip through there. And, of course, the place wasn't there. Right. Same exact spot. And so that is more of a you could say a dimensional slip or a time slip story. That's what I was going to say is when they were reconciling their credit card at the end of the month, there was a thing that said <laughs> interdimensional diner charge. Yeah. There's a tax. Yeah, there's a tax. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking now because we've talked about that story so many times. I wonder how they paid. I wonder if they paid cash or. I would have. Yes, I would assume. Yeah. So uh, where'd your money go? You know, follow the money. That's what I say. It's but, like, yeah. who made the food? <laughs> yeah. It's like they ate food from another dimension. And they, they thought it was good enough that they wanted to come back. It's not like, well, the, the attitudes aren't great, but the man, <laughs> just, the, uh, just, just the decor is terrific. And then the other story that we love, this one chilled me and so many others to the core, is a similar thing where a, a woman and her friend were coming back from a concert. 
And this would probably be, you know, one to two in the morning where bars are still open and they pull over and it's a roadhouse. Gravel road. There's a few cars in the parking lot. They go in. Long this is story Jim Harold too, by the yeah, way. Yeah, this is also yeah. on the, and, and, and we've talked about this before. It's one of his most famous ones that ended up in a book of collected stories from his podcast. But long story short, they also go in, they have beers there. They converse with people. Well, actually, they talked to people, and the people turned and smiled at them, and they nodded, but they didn't say any words back. They just, like, they acknowledged their presence, and they seemed friendly, but they just didn't really want to talk. And so the, the couple thought, like, oh, I guess, you know, they're having fun. These all look like regulars. Maybe they just don't want to talk to strangers, but they're, they're friendly. They're just not talkative. Then, of course, I'll spoil it here just because Terry hasn't heard this. They notice a giant mural on the wall. And this is where the one time, and I hearing the woman tell the story, I, it lends a little bit of credibility, but you would think it's a Twilight Zone or a Night Gallery, Rod Serling's Night Gallery episode. They notice this giant mural on the wall, and it's exactly as the interior of the building is. And then they start noticing like, oh, uh, all the regulars are here and they're in the mural. Well, there's the bartender with the, the mesh muscle shirt. And there are those three people over there and they're playing cards. And like, gosh, they, these guys must be real great regulars that they, they put them in the mural. And then they start to look at everybody. It's like everybody here who's in the painting. And then they notice that, oh, if you look out, there's the swinging doors or the, the door coming into the, the roadhouse. I'm probably getting some of these details right because it's been so long ago. They see themselves oh. because the woman has, I believe she walked with two canes coming through the door. It's like, is that us in the painting <laughs> coming into the place? It, it really does look like that. And I think at that point they decided we we better go because you may be weirdly trapped here somehow. So they left. Now, here's the, the twist on this. They came back later, I believe, and the place was there. It's a real place. But asking around, the bartender they asked about, like, oh, yeah, that, I, I don't know, that guy doesn't work here anymore. Or if he did, it's years ago. We don't, we don't know who that is. But it's a real place, and it just wasn't open at the time that they arrived at night or shouldn't have been. So that's another variation. That's why we like to hear these stories and collect them and compare things and, and the differences in that it didn't seem like an abduction story. Again, another time slip story. But in this case, a time slip inside an existing place or just had another different facade in there and they didn't want to be trapped in that. Anyway, when she tells the story for the first time, you know, her voice is shaking. You can tell there's a lot of emotion there and either she's a really great actress or there's something that was deeply disturbing. It turned out okay, but they felt like they they just missed being locked into something. Yeah. So those are the differences I see when I when I hear these stories and, and compare the the details of that. Again, they seemed fine. Nothing was described later as any kind of after effects other than it, it creeped them out and they went back to check on it. And yeah, so it was a real place. So again, all these variations, I don't think you can lock any of these down, but when we read the stories from the latter half of your book, there are common threads to a lot of them, which makes me wonder because there are, these people didn't coordinate their stories. And I don't think it's where they're all hearing the same thing and it's in their imaginations, like let's all include the same items. You know, I, I kind of had the thought that, uh, because I saw this thread of commonality run through these stories, that's partially why I chose the stories I did, because they are so similar to one another in so many ways. I mean, I could give a dozen examples, but, you know, that to me, similar stories from different people just make it more credible. I agree. Yeah. And I think people who uh, 
would use the argument. It's like, of course, we all see the same movies about aliens and we all see the same stories and hear the same stories with the writers all writing these cliches into them. And sure, we do as well, Scott and I and yourself. We've all seen the same movies and TV shows and 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 this and that and, and read the same stories. But what's different is that the elements that end up in these stories aren't found in these other popular media offerings in that a lot of those are cliched, but they don't ring true like these. And so either these people are really clever in writing up these fake stories, or maybe they misremembered them, but including just enough so that they appear to be unique, but with commonalities, or there is something really common happening throughout these. You know, most of the stuff we come across, people, average people aren't that clever or conniving in in trying to put one over on people. I, I just don't get, I don't buy that, that even if it's subconscious, sure, there are some tropes. And that's what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation is that those show up in the stories that we don't tend to believe as much. Yeah, agreed. Not the ones that we hear here, because it's, again, not so entertainment fantastical, but just philosophically fantastical, just metaphysically fantastical, just just strange. And they don't make much sense. And you don't also have many threads to go on as you do in, in some of the stories that are less credible to us. You know, I, I know very little of, or hardly anything about the Bigfoot phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And in October, I got invited to a Bigfoot hunt. So I, I went and uh, I heard some strange things. I heard some <laughs> knocking of wood, just things that were a little creepy. I never saw anything. And then uh, someone told me, recently that they read a book by David Polites, who I oh, yeah. all the respect in the world for, wrote a book called Tribal Bigfoot before he became known in the 411 series. Right. Okay. So I had to read it. And again, commonalities all over the place. I mean, just same story, different location. You know, maybe it's got brown hair, maybe it's got black hair. I guess you could ask, does that make it less credible or more credible? You know, David Polites, I think, is a pretty, uh, pretty good observer, somebody who reports what he sees or finds, but doesn't draw conclusions. Right. Who knows? Hello, I'm Mike from the Neatcast podcast, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, we'd like to do the pig roast interrupted story we can hear you share that with our listeners that's another one of those really good ones and uh it has a lot of things in common with things we've just been talking about so you know this is a story that's kind of near and dear to my heart because uh it's from someone in texas i did change the city and some names uh that his request but i also had a chance to verify some facts that he gave me and i i believe his story And this is a great illustration of what I call the band breaks up. Yes. Let me just dive right into this. It's called Pig Roast Interrupted, and it's from Garrett, Midland, Texas. Dear Terry, I had some really strange stuff happen to me as a kid, too. But the story I want to share with you was from when I was in my mid-20s. I had a life-changing event just like you and your friend. I lived in a big house in Midland at the time with my ex and our daughter. Midland is a decent-sized little town in Texas, 
I'd been a firefighter there since I returned home from military service. I preferred to just go by Garrett. I retired in 2016. When I was 27, a bunch of us guys at the firehouse all bought AR-15s and ranch rifles. We were planning a big hunt for wild hogs. We had all served in the military and were decent shots. The five of us, Jeff, Tom, Billy, Melvin, and I, all hung out together and usually took an annual fishing trip. This would be something very different. Jeff's family owned a hunting camp with a trailer on 50 acres that would sleep the five of us comfortably. His family went down once or twice a year for a getaway or to go hunt. Game was plentiful. His place was just a couple hours away so we could all go in my F-250 pickup. Hogs were a nuisance there since they're the top predator. Our plan was to shoot a couple hogs and have a pig roast there. We'd all get away from the firehouse for a long weekend, have some fun, hopefully take home some meat to our family and friends. It was supposed to be just a fun weekend, get away from work. We planned this trip like you and your friend planned your trip to Devil's Den. We were methodical. We were first responders too. We stocked and took care of our fire engines and vehicles, keeping everything in order. Unlike your trip though, we didn't forget a single item on the list. We were obsessed with this stupid hunting trip and it didn't turn out like it was supposed to. Not at all. Everything started out well. Then on the day we were supposed to go, Tom backed out at the last minute. He said he didn't feel well. It must have been sudden because he was fine the previous day. We chalked it up to a fight with his wife over the trip. His marriage was rocky at the time. The remaining four of us made the ride down and got settled in. We had fun the first night. We got there late, so the next day would be the start of the hunt. We're not a bunch of drunks, and we sure don't do drugs because we're subject to random drug tests. This isn't like a bunch of novices out in the woods getting spooked at night over nothing. We're all seasoned outdoorsmen. I know this is hard to believe. If it hadn't happened to me, I doubt that I'd believe it. I never believed in any of this stuff. I always thought it was comic book stuff. Jeff killed a hog that first day. The rest of us got nothing. We teased Jeff about having the home court advantage, but it was his place and we were his guests. There'd be another hunt the next day. At least we had a pig to roast that second evening. Even if we didn't bag another pig, it would still have been a nice trip and we'd have some meat to take home and share. Billy was a great cook. That evening, he and Jeff used a wheelbarrow to take the pig a good piece away from the trailer. Jeff's family had a special spot with a hoist. It was 200 yards away, so not to draw coyotes or stink up the place. While Billy and Jeff did the butchering, we set up the pit for the roast. We had a nice fire going, and it was just getting dark. The smell of the firewood was nice, even for firefighters. We were all in good spirits and hungry. Finally, the hog was on the spit and the four of us sat around and talked about guns, the firehouse, the latest gossip. 
Billy's skill as a cook meant we'd have a nice dinner. We could hear the coyotes and the crickets along with the crackling fire. By now, the smell of the roasted pig made us all pretty hungry. It was a pleasant evening, good friends and good conversation. It was the last time the four of us would get together outside the firehouse. Melvin was in his early 50s and close to retirement. We all knew he was struggling with his help and pitched in to help cover him on the job. This night, Mel was anxious for some reason. Jeff asked him, hey old man, you all right? Mel said, yeah, but I think I need a nitro. No big deal, I'll pop one and lie down on the couch for a while. I'll be good as new by the time the pig's done. Wake me if I doze off. With a wave and a good night, he went inside the trailer and shut the screen door behind him. That left the three of us, me, Jeff, and Billy. I sat with my back to the trailer facing outward. I could see the ridge where the forest got thick 50 yards away. That's when I saw what looked like a couple of guys with flashlights in the woods. I never saw the guys, but I sure as hell saw the beams of light dancing around in the thick woods. I announced, boys, I think we have company. Jeff and Billy turned around and saw it too. Annoyed, Jeff said, poachers probably. Our place is well posted. Pretty ballsy to see the fire and not give a damn. That's why the lights are in the trees. I asked, what do we do? Without warning, Jeff angrily pulled out his 45 caliber handgun and fired seven shots into the air. We let them know we're here and they're not welcome. That's what we do, said Jeff. Jeff was pissed off that someone would trespass. Their trailer had been broken into the previous year, so it was a sore subject. He ejected the empty magazine and popped in a fresh clip slamming around into the chamber in one smooth motion. That'll fix their asses, he said confidently, expecting them to leave. I asked Billy to go check on Melvin. The last thing we need to do is trigger a heart attack for our comrade with an unexpected burst of gunfire. Jeff and I continued to watch the lights as Billy went through the front door. This is where things got weird. We were surprised that despite the warning shots, the lights were brighter and more active than ever. Jeff was livid. He wanted a confrontation, but I warned him, we don't know who we're dealing with here. Let's be careful and think this through. He nodded in agreement. Just then, Billy burst out of the trailer in a panic. Melvin's gone, he declared urgently. I said, what the hell do you mean he's gone? He's in the trailer and the back door is blocked. Maybe he snuck out to take a piss. Let's find him. The trailer had no plumbing. I wasn't too afraid at this point. Oddly, Jeff didn't notice all our urgent raised voices. He was still fixated on the lights in the trees. He picked up his rifle and walked almost 50 yards into the field toward the tree line. I yelled, hey Jeff, we lost Melvin. Give us a hand. He had to have heard me, but he didn't respond or even turn around. Billy ran down to check the truck and I walked toward the outhouse. We were both calling out for Melvin as we went. That's when the fright set in. 
at least for me. It's difficult to describe, but after a few years of firefighting, you learn to trust your gut. That nose for danger saved my life more than a few times fighting fires. Trust your senses and listen, I whispered under my breath. I had those goosebumps and I felt my heart racing. Something was just off, not right. I got to the outhouse and reached for the wooden door handle, calling out, hey Mel, you in there? I recall the feel and texture of the wood to my fingers. The next thing I knew, I was in the trailer in the recliner. I heard Jeff's voice and opened my eyes to see the yellowed drop panel ceiling of the old trailer. It was early dawn. I sat up. Melvin was back on the couch with a sheet pulled up to his neck. Jeff nodded at me and walked over to the couch. I think we both had the same fear. Jeff kicked the sofa with his foot a couple times. Hey, old man, you all right? Melvin stirred and then sat up and asked, how was the pig? Good question, said Jeff. We rushed outside to the fire pit. Jeff's pig was burnt to cinders on the bottom and an uncooked, ugly gray color on top. It was garbage. The embers were cold. Without another word said, we went back inside. Billy was up now, but kind of out of it, struggling to make coffee. Jeff announced, hey guys, I say we head home. Any objections? There were none. After all, it was his trailer. I asked Jeff what he wanted us to do with the pig carcass. He said, leave it for the coyotes. I don't give a damn. So be it. We started loading the truck. That took maybe 30 minutes and we were back on the road. In my head, I kept going over and over the facts of that night. Where the hell did Mel go? Was he in the outhouse? How did I end up inside the trailer at sunrise? We'd all had a couple beers. I mean, it was boys' night out, but no one was drunk, I swear to God. Billy sat next to me in the truck and played with the radio. Jeff and Melvin were both in the back seat and slept the entire way home. Billy and I admitted we felt like we were coming down with the flu. There was little to no conversation. I don't get it. I felt angry at Melvin for the disappearing act. I felt angry at Jeff for walking out of camp toward what could have been an armed poacher and Billy for just being so damn useless. But I didn't want to confront anyone. I didn't even want to discuss it. Everyone was in the same frame of mind. We were back at the firehouse on Tuesday afternoon to begin our shift. Tom joined us full of enthusiasm and questions about the big hunting trip. His questions made us uncomfortable. No one wanted to talk about it. I just wanted to forget about it. Then Tom asked, why'd you guys come home two days early? Jeff went off on him. If you weren't under your old lady's thumb, you would have been with us. It just wasn't a good hunt. Get it? Now give it a rest, will you? The gang of five never got together again, socially. I asked to be moved to a different shift. Billy moved to another duty station on the other side of town for a year. Mel retired early for medical reasons. He was dead from a heart attack two years later. 
Billy opened a successful barbecue restaurant a couple years later and left the fire service. Tom split up with his wife and moved to Little Rock, Arkansas, where he was picked up as a paramedic serving the city. I left the firehouse three years later and went into the concrete business with my brother-in-law. That was a good move for me and my family. We never faced it. The nightmares began a month later. We slept at the firehouse. When one of us woke up screaming, everyone knew it. We all took our turn. My dreams are so peculiar. Even after all these years, they're still vivid and always the same. It's odd that nothing particularly frightening even happens. But they all take place at Jeff's hunting camp, usually beginning with a frantic search for Mel, ending with me seeing what looks like hooded figures crossing the field in our direction, and Jeff walking out as if to greet them. The lights are always on in the background, illuminating the woods. I have trouble waking up from the nightmare and screaming is the only way to break out of it. It's embarrassing in the firehouse and it scares the hell out of my girlfriend at home. About six years later, my girlfriend and I dropped by Billy's restaurant for some barbecued brisket. It was my first time there. Billy was in the kitchen. I asked our server to please let him know an old friend was here. Just as our food came out, Billy followed in his chef's apron. He asked the waitress to bring us all a cold bottle of Shiner beer. We shook hands and I introduced Sarah. He pulled up a chair. I complimented him on his restaurant and said the brisket was phenomenal. He thanked me and was obviously pleased and proud about his restaurant. We made small talk. The last time I saw Billy may have been at Mel's funeral. I asked him, Billy, what happened to Mel that night in Jeff's hunting camp? Billy looked stunned by the question. I don't know. Then he paused and asked, still having the dreams? I admitted, yeah, now and then. Me too. Enjoy your meal and come back and see us, Billy said, shaking my hand. He knew I wouldn't be back. Analysis. There is a Latin legal term that fits nicely here. It's re ipsa locator, or the thing speaks for itself. Without competent hypnotherapy, I doubt if we'll ever know any more details. If Garrett does seek regression, he promised to call me with the results. I note that Garrett began his correspondence with admitting childhood experiences as well but he declined to discuss them. Wow. You know, and like you said, and the band breaks up, that's the fascinating thing. It's like the trauma, you can hide the trauma from your conscious mind, but not your subconscious mind. People's reactions get in there no matter what they do with the memories. You know, when I was writing this, I remembered reading years ago, Ray Fowler's book on the Allagash Four. You know, they went there, two twins, the um, Weiner brothers, and uh, uh-huh. a guy named Rack, and I forget the fourth, but all good friends hung out together, fished, did stuff together. After their abduction experience from a canoe on some lake in Maine, they all went in different directions. Yeah. And here's another case with this story that is similar to the Christmas store. When the story was told, there was no mention of hooded figures, but those are in the dream. Correct. 
Yeah. So that's interesting. These components, I mean, these people don't know each other that are sending you these stories. They have the story itself, and then they have these dreams that have details that weren't in the story. And they're, they're always so apologetic. I think that's, that's one, of the, um, one of the things that makes the story genuine is when they're so apologetic, like, you know, you're going to think I'm crazy. Please don't think I'm nuts. They keep doing that because they feel they need to because they know that their story is outrageous. Right. Yeah. Have you ever tried going under hypnotic regression? Yeah, it's an idea to ask about regression. We may have talked about this. I, I well, used to anyway. I, I use earbuds now that are, but I used to sleep with my iPhone that's shielded, you know, to keep my heart safe and earbuds with a wire. And I'd listen to hypnotic tapes, you know, meditative apps on my phone, I should say. And I've been doing that for years. I mean, back in Sony Walkman days, I'd wear a pair of earphones to bed at night because it blocks out the ambient noise. I can sleep. It just helps me. And I uh, had an incident on April 16th of 2019. The story is in The Reckoning. Hmm. And what happened was I woke up out of breath and I felt like I was uh, having some type of cardiac event. And I've had cardiac problems in the past. And I told my wife, I said, I think you ought to call EMS just to be safe. And I didn't have chest pain, but I was having trouble getting enough oxygen. And I woke up at 5.55, which is interesting. I'll make a long story short, I went to the hospital. They took me to the hospital. I know the drill. It's three things. It's an EKG, a chest X-ray, and cardiac enzymes. Boom, boom, boom. Everything's normal. And they cut me loose after about seven hours. And I go home and I feel fine. Actually, I felt fine about an hour after the, uh, I woke up at 5.55. My, my pulse was, you know, tachycardic and it came down. My blood pressure came down. I finally it was able to get enough oxygen. I went home. And after dinner that evening, I felt absolutely normal. So I told my wife, I'm going to do my usual routine. I'm going to go walk a mile and be home. So I pulled my iPhone out of my pocket because I always check my steps. That's how I check my activity during the day. And I was expecting to see 30 steps or something because I'd been in the hospital all day. Well, what I, what I did see was I saw on my cell phone app that at 5.23 a.m. and 5.24 a.m., I was 60 feet above my house. Am I covering territory we've already talked about? I feel like we did touch on this, but it's, you know what, it's okay to record it. We'll, we'll check it. We'll, we'll transcribe everything. And if it's repeated, we'll cut it somewhere. But. And this may be off the record, but thank you for sending over the, the shots of the book and one of you and uh, Lou Elizondo, but there were two screenshots and it's funny, like, you know, cause we, we kind of wrapped up publishing the page uh, and posting it late at night last night. And I'm wondering, it's like, there's something significant about these screenshots and Scott and I were, well, or maybe it was just kind of a mistake that he just grouped he them. He sent and, his steps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, well, good for you. I just thought like, and I didn't look into them because uh, initially, yeah, we just thought they were part of a batch of photos that ca that came over, but it's like, there's just something significant. It's like, wait a second, the altitude or you were up in five, like a five story building. Yeah. Yeah. Six flights. Yeah. If you look on the Y index there, it's up in 10, 10 foot increments. According to the Apple Store, between 5.23 and 5.24 a.m., when I thought I was asleep in bed next to my wife, my phone, at least, was 60 feet over my house. Yeah, that's... I don't know. I don't understand that. And that... That's I, really something. 
you ask if I'd ever been explored hypnotic regression, and I decided to do that very narrowly. I wanted to find out what happened to me on April 16, 2019, between 5.23 and 5.24 a.m. when I was 60 feet above my uh, my house. Yeah, and a very good specific one-time incident that could be easily or more easily looked at. Yeah, you know, and I, I thought it was good not to just openly say what ha- what's happened to me during my lifetime. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to focus yeah, on right. this particular event. My friend, who happens to be a psychiatrist, said, uh, you know, I, I can I can regress. She says, I do it with people all the time. And I said, all right, well, let's, let's try that. So I did, right, be- right before COVID blew up, right? And we, <laughs> yeah. we had one session, and I, uh, in my mind's eye, I saw myself going up through the roof, through the ceiling, and into the, into the air, and I recall feeling cold. It was cold outside, and it was just breaking dawn. And there were still stars out, and there was a ship, a round ship, like 60 feet over my house. And that's what I saw in my mind's eye. And I screamed, and he took my blood pressure because he's an MD, and he said, we're going to stop here. And I've not explored it any further because it was disturbing. Although I did decide to become a certified hypnotherapist. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so I should have that done by February 1st. Oh, very cool. That's something that's interested Scott and I, I think, for a long time, certainly since I was a kid, just all the principles of it. And, of course, a lot of people will, uh, I think, dismiss it saying, well, whatever you come up with, it's not reliable, but and you can't go by what's being said because the therapist is can ask leading questions, implant memories, this and that. But I think like with everything that we talk about, not all of it is can be thrown out the window or should be that there could be elements in there that are the truth. And if just a few of them are true, then it's pretty wild. Yeah. I, I admit there's a subjective element to it. It's not the kind of thing, right, you know, it right. can be peer reviewed or you can say the whole thing about the entire subject of psychology. I mean, it's all yeah. subjective at some <laughs> level. Scott and I just talked about in our series on the exorcist and that you can't really yet look inside someone's head to see what's really going on. You can see symptoms of it. You can examine the behavior of somebody and make a a diagnosis then, but you can only really with pharmaceuticals play around till you get a mix that seems to quell whatever's going on. You can't really, the mental illness or, or mental affectations are just so mysterious to us still that, yeah, it's, again, it's like, in one of the stories here that we're going to hear about, a psychiatrist or psychologist is simply just guessing based on a half an hour, an hour of discussion. Yeah. So in any case, I want to ask you if you ever experienced uh, hypnosis and what the outcome was, but you are comfortable with the practice, but maybe from the other side of the couch then. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I do. <laughs> okay. You know, I see that maybe as a way... I get so many people write to me and say, you know, can you recommend somebody to regress me? And I know two people, Yvonne Smith in LA and Kathleen Martin in Florida. I wouldn't mind if it's helpful to people. And I'm told by Yvonne Smith, who's done this for 30 years, that it's very healthy for people to get this out of their system. To, And I saw how people that talked to me 
told me that they found it cathartic and they felt good to finally have someone to so in that regard maybe it's uh, maybe it's a way to um, be helpful be a service well let us know if you do it I yeah mean, we'll obviously be interested in talking to you about it and what you what you uncover to the extent that you're comfortable sharing it sure. i'm certainly going to look up yvonne smith here in los angeles oh yeah please see. do tell her i referred you okay will do uh, yeah, if you go to therapy, it's just going to tell you that uh, that I'm the thorn in your side. So. Well, I, I don't need therapy for that. That's 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 obvious. Okay, so two things. One thing I didn't get a chance to talk about this earlier. I did find going back to Tonopah, the Stage Stop Cafe, which is part of a whole like little place called the Tonopah Station that has a casino and a hotel. But it's there, the Stage Stop Cafe. You can see pictures of it online. Okay, yeah, a guy emailed me and said it's now called the Station. Yeah, no, that's it. The whole thing is called the station, Tonopah mm. Station. Okay. And it's inside of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a complex, like a little visiting a complex that you would visit. And that's the restaurant inside of yeah. it. So it's gotta be pretty a road wild. Trip. So yeah. I did I did Google Christmas stores in Tonopah. I came up with nothing. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> so I was gonna ask both of you, do you have an image of well, first of all, it's always with the lights. We talked about this when we had Terry on first. I, I get, it's a universal thing, of course. It permeates the universe, but it is such a tool for this uh, and these these beings, whatever they may be, and maybe for us in the future with technology. But there's always something about the lights. But what's interesting is that some seem to be like the beam you experienced, in, and I've heard this description as well. In another story that's going to in an upcoming episode where somebody saw the beam from a long distance coming from a craft, but it retracted. The beam either retracted up slowly or it just all snapped off at once. Yeah. Unlike a natural flashlight, there's there's control over that type of beam. But it was going to say, just getting back to the the Christmas story, I was going to ask you to what I picture here is if if you've ever been to the inside of a Cracker Barrel restaurant. <laughs> with their Christmas display that is just like overwhelming. There's just things, I don't know, that just uh, triggered me in a way that, in that it's a, a rustic outside. Yeah. That, the uh, the, the really big long porch all along the front of the building. Yeah. Right. But, but in this story, as well as the one we're going to finish tonight with just there, there's something also maybe, it just seems like it's decorative also in a way or something that's meant to attract. Yeah. Like with the Christmas store, if there was no lights on it, it would just be, well, there's a funky building out in the middle of a, a sandy stretch of a lot there with no roads going to it or parking lot. That's odd, but you wouldn't be attracted to it. It's almost like fishing lures. Ooh, I like, that's a good analogy. <laughs> just, well, to me, it's just like, is, is all that necessary? All the, the twirling lights and the the spinning and all the other weird stuff that we hear about that, that goes on. Well, you know, the guy that from Burlington, Vermont, who wrote to me about the 727 that he saw, mm -hmm. even yeah. though there are none flying. Yeah. And he's a former Navy pilot. He's a former Navy pilot. Yeah. Yeah. There are these brilliant lights coming through every window in the plane. Right. Which is like, begs the question, is that what it really is? Or is it camouflage? It's so strange. Yeah. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Angie. Now back to the show. Okay, Terry, uh, this has been a blast. And now we come to me and Scott's favorite story from your book, I think. Oh, yeah. This one, it's just so fascinating. And 
It's a little sad. There are a lot of elements to it. And it's amazing how much it has in common with the Christmas store story. But there's something about this one that's very emotional. And we thought since it was kind of personal to you, you should read this one. Well, with that, I'll just dive into it. This is case number five in the book. It's titled The Carnival Ride. I'm referring to this lady as Julia, per her request. She's from Lake St. Charles, Louisiana. And I'll begin. Julia's story is a bit unusual. That is why I chose to present it mostly as a narrative, but began as an occasional email dialogue eventually led to a couple exceptionally long telephone calls and an in-person meeting. So I had a great deal of facts to work with to explain her story. Julia's life is the best documented and most compelling story I've received to date, and I hope you agree. One morning while pouring over the accumulated emails from the previous day, I landed on an email from a 69-year-old nurse anesthetist, originally from Oklahoma, who began with the usual disclaimer. Now, I know this will sound a bit crazy. I wanted to tell her, Julia, I've heard everything. Disclaimers and apologies aren't necessary. She made her career as a nurse anesthetist and dealt with the greatest mystery of all, human consciousness. I verified her credentials through the Louisiana Board of Nursing online. Then I refilled my coffee cup and dove deeper into her story. It's a fact that under anesthesia, you do not dream. It is just lights out. You wake up in recovery, and if everything has gone as planned, you have no memory at all of the indignities your body just suffered at the hands of a steel scalpel and being stitched back together with needle and thread. All you can recall was a warm, pleasant flush as the anesthetist pushed the plunger of a syringe, injecting a milky liquid into your IV tubing. What followed was darkness, then the light of the recovery room. I was determined to discuss the topic of consciousness with Julia, if given an opportunity. My present task was to read, process, document, and evaluate this incredible story that she told me. I believe every word of what she experienced. I was struck by her grasp of English grammar and had the feeling a great deal of thought, more than a few tears, were part of her emails. Most of the emails I receive are from people in their 40s through 80s, which is an odd demographic. I tend to take note of demographics because I think, since I unwittingly found myself now in the role of an investigator, these things are important. Like myself, people tend to hold these stories close to their vest until later years, when criticism from their peers is no longer an issue. Julia acknowledged that hospital administrators and probably half the medical staff would not believe her experience or appreciate her story becoming public. Julia's case is the best, in my opinion, because she is so credible and her story is so amazing. In ways, it is like the Christmas store in case number one. Her story is a result of a month-long exchange of email correspondence, no less than four telephone conversations, and finally a meeting in person at a breakfast restaurant. We split the difference in driving and met in Texarkana, where Julia could visit a family member. I'd never been to Texarkana. It is where my mother was born in 1924. Because Julia's story is an amazing and heartbreaking saga, I really thought it would be worth the drive. My wife and I are both retired, so why not take a road trip? 
and it is my great pleasure to share her story with you. Julia told me about life in rural Oklahoma 60 years ago when she was a little girl. Her parents, like mine, were originally farm people before moving to the city, seeking work in the thriving factories, frantically producing arms for the Second World War. Most then stayed for the post-war boom. She described the little cottage home where she grew up and the pink room that she shared with her younger sister, Molly. When Molly was seven and Julia was nine, the family went to visit their maternal grandparents in rural Oklahoma. It was an annual summer vacation visit and they always looked forward to the two-week trip. Her grandparents lived on the family farm where their mother was raised. It was blessed with a single oil well. It supplemented the family's income nicely and ensured a college education for Julia and Molly. She and her sister loved their grandparents very much. She described them as fun, doting, and affectionate. Usually during these visits, there was card playing and gossip among the adults while the girls played outside in the massive front yard until the yellow porch light signaled it was time for a bath and then bed. There was a long driveway up to the farmhouse and a split rail fence enclosing the manicured front yard. It was home also to a massive oak tree in the middle with a tractor tire around it cut to resemble a flower painted white filled with soil and dozens of bright purple gladiolas. There was a 10 foot high mound of dirt or berm that ran 100 yards along the back of the house. The top served as a roadway for the tractor. The mound of dirt worked as a wall that separated the front yard with the house from the back. Behind the berm is where outbuildings and farm implements were located. There was a barn, some pigs in a pen, tractor, and farm machinery. There was also a farm pond in the back that represented what's known in the law as an attractive nuisance a magnet for young children, a lethal danger for the unwary. Like an unguarded, unfenced swimming pool, it was a drowning hazard. At a depth of eight feet, it would be more than sufficient to swallow both girls in its murky water that looked like chocolate milk. Both girls knew the rules and had just that year been allowed to play in the front yard without direct adult supervision because of their exemplary behavior. They knew the rules and obeyed. This was Julia's ninth summer at Grandpa Jeb's and seventh for Molly. Molly's story began like so many other tragedies. This day would build a metaphoric berm that would separate two little girls for a lifetime. But it was a beautiful summer day and the flower garden was alive with butterflies. And the girls chased them into exhaustion. After a trip to the house for a cold drink, they sat at the base of the berm and discussed what to play next. Tag was out of the question since they were both tired from chasing butterflies that always evaded their grasp. Julia described their mood as happy, laughing at silly things, joking about how fat grandma had become. As their snickering and laughter died down, Julia asked, Molly, do you hear that? Molly cocked her head and listened. After a few seconds, her face lit up and the girls said in unison, it's a circus. The gentle breeze flowing over the berm carried the unmistakable sound of a calliope, 
a signature circus musical instrument of the day. Calliopes were usually steam-powered and played like a piano. Each note was formed by forcing steam through long whistles of varying lengths and diameters, like a church organ. It had a distinctive sound that was an icon of the traveling circuses. The circus was a huge amusement for entertainment-starved farm folks before the availability of motion pictures and television. Circuses traveled a circuit by train from city to city with carnival rides, exotic animals, unwinnable five-cent challenges for an opportunity to win a sawdust stuffed bear, enjoy cotton candy, and see the clowns. Molly asked excitedly, can we go? Oh, please, Julia, let's go. Being the elder in charge, Julia thought for a moment and noted the sound was not quite so loud now. She felt it her duty to be the big sister and keep her younger siblings safe. No, Julia said. They're on a train or just passing through. I think we'd better ask Grandpa first. We can't go behind the house. You know the rules, Molly. But Molly pleaded. With a well-crafted argument, Molly quickly sought a loophole in the rule that would make any lawyer proud. Molly suggested, well, Julia, we can't go over the berm, but we could stand on top of it and see if there really is a circus first, then we can run get Grandpa. The two girls smiled at one another and scampered up the steep grass-covered mound till they reached the summit. From the roadway on top of the berm, they had a magnificent view. What they saw below was unbelievable. To the left of the farm pond, there was a merry-go-round. Not just any ride from a traveling circus. This was something incredible, the likes of which they'd never seen. As they drank in the scene with their eyes, the music began again. It was louder now, and the tempo was faster too. Julia felt the need to add a second disclaimer to her story at this point. Mr. Lovelace, I know this sounds crazy, but this thing was unbelievably big. It was three times as big as any merry-go-round I'd ever seen, and the horses were not saddled and weren't on poles either. They looked like they were alive. There were a million multicolored lights all over this thing. Also, it was spinning way too fast, alarmingly fast, too fast for anyone to get on or off. The music was now louder too, and the merry-go-round wasn't even sitting on the ground. It was hovering above the ground by three feet or more. I had to interrupt at this point. How do you know it wasn't sitting on the ground? Because, Julia said, I clearly remember it cast a perfectly round shadow underneath it as it was about noon. Then she said something that resonated with me, something that may well resonate with you too. The point of this exercise is to hear the stories of others and look for commonalities that validate experiences. Julia explained, we crossed over and sat down in the grass on the other side of the berm. We lay back to just watch. I remember a deep feeling of contentment, almost numbness and euphoria combined. She explained, we felt no compulsion to get near it, but the music and seeing the lights spin was hypnotic. There was a spellbinding quality to the experience. We held hands, laid back, 
and listened as the music became even louder. At some point, we must have lost consciousness, but I doubt that we fell asleep. She added, there's no way we fell asleep. While watching and listening, we had no way to know what was going on at the farmhouse. According to relatives, what was going on back at the farmhouse began with calling the girls for lunch. Grandma called first and was soon joined by mom. When the girls didn't come and couldn't be seen from the porch, the two women panicked. Coincidentally, a car made a wrong turn down their long driveway about this time. They parked for a moment and made a U-turn on the gravel drive and drove away. The two women on the porch never saw the car approach or make a U-turn. They only saw it was driving away, heading back toward the main road. That innocent mistake led to full-blown panic when the two women connected the unrelated scenarios and somehow assumed the girls had been taken by persons unknown in the car. Grandpa Jeb and the girl's dad, accompanied by Grandpa's dogs, spread out and searched the front and backyard, including the barn, while the two women were explaining to the sheriff what they had just seen. They saw the pond water looked undisturbed, but both men knew that meant little assurance of anything. Two sheriff's deputies arrived in 10 minutes, along with friends from neighboring farms to assist with the search. Julia's grandparents were well known in the community and highly respected. Word that the girls were missing spread through the community like a prairie fire. The car that had made the U-turn in the driveway was parked at a neighboring farm two miles away. It was an innocent wrong turn by visitors. The couple in the car claimed they never saw the girls and had never been closer than about 50 yards to the parents' farmhouse. The search efforts shifted back to the farm. It was now nearly 2.30 p.m. and the girls had been missing for hours. Later, Julia learned from her mother. A deputy pulled Grandpa aside and told him, Jeb, I've got some help and a couple dogs on the way. We've also got two men coming with a John boat and poles, just in case. Grandpa knew what that implied and he broke down. The deputy suggested he pull himself together and, quote, get the women inside. There were a dozen people at the farm now to help with the search. By 4.30 p.m., there was a boat in the pond. Two strong men with long poles stirred the water, dredging the bottom to bring to the surface any small bodies that may be lifelessly afloat between the bottom of the pond and the middle afloat by natural buoyancy. Neither girl could swim. These men have done this work before, said Grandma solemnly, confessing their faces betrayed the dismal task they faced that hot afternoon. The grandparents watched and cried, according to what Julia was told afterward. Soon even more help arrived from the church and the VFW hall. They fanned out along the tree line that separated the homestead from the fields. The corn was high, and if the girls were in the field and lost, the search could stretch into the evening. Then the discovery was made, and the call rang out from one of the boatmen. We got them, Jeb. We got them both. 
All the adults rushed to the front yard over the berm at a run, and there they lay, Julia and Molly on their backside, looking deeply asleep. They were lying in the grass, still holding hands and dry as a bone. They soon stirred from the excitement around them and woke up confused as to why all the commotion. Julia explained, Later, they told me that one of the men in the boat was looking in our direction and claimed he did not see us. He had looked away for just a moment. When he looked up again, he saw us lying in the grass. According to him, we were just suddenly there. According to her mother, the boatman told Grandpa Jeb, they wasn't there one minute and the next minute they was there on the grass. No one can understand it, he said but no one gave a damn, neither. It was now 5 o'clock p.m., and the girls had been missing for four hours at a minimum. Neither had the slightest memory of anything that may have happened to them during the hours they were missing. Julia said, it's a blank slate. Their belief was that they simply fell asleep. Initially, Julia and Molly both felt that they had just fallen asleep and now faced a spanking for crossing the berm. The girls were shocked when they received an outpouring of loving kindness, along with a stern warning from Grandma. Don't you girls ever scare Grandma like this again, or I'll whip the tar out of both of you. Julia said something else that hit home with me. She said that, except for a couple rare exceptions, the family never spoke about the incident afterward, ever. Also, from that day forward, they were different little girls, according to Julia. Their relationship was different in ways Julia could not articulate in a phone call. She said it was a turning point in their lives, and she and Molly, while they always loved one another as sisters, were never as close, never playmates again, except on rare occasions. No more chasing butterflies. Their parents noted a marked change in the girls' behavior. They were both more serious and less playful than before this all happened. Historically, Julia had marginal grades in math since second grade. She played softball, was a tomboy, preferring to play outside rather than do her homework. Her grammar skills were acceptable, as were history and other subjects, but math had plagued her young academic life since first grade. It baffled her when it unexpectedly improved. When the school year began again in late August, Julia grudgingly pulled out her basic arithmetic book and found she understood the concept of fractions almost effortlessly. She excelled now in all subjects and did her homework without coercion. Her parents told Julia she was like a little adult. She enjoyed their praise and said she felt like a grown-up. Molly, on the other hand, was sullen and withdrawn. It was an abrupt change from her usual carefree and outgoing personality. She demanded a room of her own. And when the facts were explained that the house simply didn't have a third bedroom, she became uncharacteristically resentful. According to Julia, Molly lost her laugh. She was never the same either. For some reason I do not understand. I grew uncomfortable around Molly, my own sister, and couldn't wrap my head around it. It was like we became strangers almost, 
Well, sure, we loved each other on a familial level and even shared some secrets occasionally, but things were different between us. Molly had problems in school. It could be brooding and withdrawn. I just don't get it. We could never talk about what happened at Grandpa Jeb's that summer, almost never. For some reason, both of us considered it off limits. Julia skipped her adolescent years. She said Molly married young and had a family right away. Julia's grades took her to university where she excelled in nursing school. Her math skills secured her a place in a nurse anesthetist program, and she had a fulfilling and lucrative career in medicine. Her only regret, while proud to be a registered nurse, she wished she'd gone to medical school instead. She admits she underestimated her abilities. In her third email to me, Julia explained that five years earlier, Molly had been diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. Separated by some distance, Julia took time off from work using the Family Medical Leave Act to spend time with Molly toward the end. Molly moved from Kentucky to Louisiana to be closer to Julia as she entered hospice care. Molly was estranged from her children and the three men who'd fathered her children. Julia said she was by her bedside providing loving support and palliative care, offering generous pain medication to ensure her comfort. Molly mostly refused the pain medication and the two of them typically sat in uncomfortable silence. Julia felt conflicted. Molly didn't wanna die alone but she didn't want to engage her sister either. Julia said it was clear she was going to pass soon. I held her hand. I think it was the first time I had held her hand like that since we were at the farm. She was lucid and still refused morphine. I felt the time was right to ask, so I pulled myself together and I asked her, Molly, would you like to talk about what happened that day at grandpa and grandma's house? Sadly, Julia said, Molly turned her face toward the wall and withdrew her hand. She held clenched fist under her chin and angrily said no. She passed a few hours later. I asked Julia to please tell me about her dreams and tell me what she thinks really happened that afternoon at the farmhouse. She promised she would give it some thought and compose something. I asked for permission to share her story. She agreed so long as I did not disclose her identity. I kept my promise. The following is the correspondence Julia drafted that explains what she thinks happened after years of nightmares and assorted phobias. It's a compelling story and I'll present it in her own words without commentary. In an emotional final email, Julia explained the backstory that draws some conclusions. Dear Terry, I've been thinking about your questions and how to tell this story in a way that will make sense for your readers. I'll start with the nightmares. Molly had them too, but wouldn't talk about them until one day when we were in our thirties when I told her about two recurring dreams that were making me crazy. This was 25 years after they took us. I don't have a contemporary memory of the events. I have no clear memories that didn't originate in nightmares, 
I told Molly I dreamt we were kids again, back at Grandpa Jeb's. I remember looking at the carousel and feeling trance-like. I was on autopilot. They took us. I can see them as shadow people at first, then they became solid. They took our clothes off, and a thing that looked like a white computer monitor came down from the ceiling and spun around me. It was like having a CAT scan. The experience had a clinical feel. There were six foot tall beings and the little ones they call grays. The taller ones were in control. I kept hearing a voice in my head, telepathically, I guess. It told me, don't be afraid, we won't hurt you. I think the voice was female, but it's hard to say. In the second dream, I was lying on a table and they stuck a stainless steel probe of some kind up my nose. It hurt like the dickens and I heard an audible crack. This was in a dream, so I never felt the pain. I just remembered or imagined it. In the same dream, I saw my legs being spread apart and they did something down there. It hurt a lot too. I knew right then that I'd never be able to have children. That's a weird premonition for a nine-year-old. It turned out to be correct. As I was telling this story to Molly, she looked at me in astonishment. She confessed we shared nearly the same dream. I'm sure she discussed this with me only out of shock and surprise, but she spoke openly and shared a little of her story just this once. It was just one time. In a rare moment of openness, Molly told me about her nightmare. They did something to me down there too. But they also did something through my eye that hurt like hell. They stuck something like a silver knitting needle in my eye near the bridge of my nose. I screamed, no, it's too big. It hurt so much I thought I'd lose my mind. Maybe I did, Julia. Maybe I did way back then. They took something else from me too. I know they took my virginity. They took away my innocence. I was just a child. We were children then. We both cried. It was the only time we laid bare our souls to each other in 50 years. I wish I could explain the guilt I felt afterward. What should have been a shared moment of discovery turned sour. I had a bout of depression afterward and Molly broke off contact for a while. I still take prescription antidepressants. Molly was diagnosed in her early 20s as having bipolar disorder and impulse control issues. She had a string of failed marriages and the dads got custody of her three children. I never had a chance to get to know them. Molly would never let me into her life. Our parents only saw the kids a few times. Molly's life was one of excess in everything, including pain medication after a questionable back injury and a workers' compensation claim. Thank God she married good men, but she couldn't hold on to them or have a decent relationship. She was afraid to let anyone in. She distanced herself from the family, and no one knows why, except me. I know because I understand a little about the emotions involved. Mom made the connection between the farmhouse and the changes in the both of us. 
It's hard to judge changes in yourself, but I felt different after it happened. I know what we saw was no carnival ride. It was a UFO, and that's no lie. Over the years, I saw a change in my dreams. It lost the horses, and the lights change. Those dreams still scare the hell out of me. You know, I've never been married, but I've had a close partner for many years. We have our dogs. I feel lucky to have a full life. I've had a good life. But whenever I allow myself to think about the farm and what happened in the four hours we were missing, I know I won't sleep well for a few nights. I had a spell where I had a shot of tequila before bed every evening. I also had a painful shoulder injury, a torn rotator cuff from tennis. I embraced it. The pain gave me an excuse to pop a few Darvon legitimately for pain. Conveniently, they were only semi-narcotic medication I could take that wouldn't be missed from the medication cart. Darvon was discontinued 10 years ago, and that was the end of it. I admit I stole a fentanyl patch once or twice at the expense of patients in pain, substituting a used patch for the one I could take home. But they checked the serial numbers, so I was fortunate to get away with it. I regret the pain those poor patients endured so I could get high and have a good night's rest. Suffice to say, in a few years, I was spiraling out of control. I'd missed some work, and my supervising doc had a talk with me. I guess he smelled alcohol in my breath from the previous evening before we went into the OR for an emergency surgery. Even with our mask on, I'm pretty sure I slurred my speech too. He could have thrown me out of the OR, but at the time there was no one else on such short notice. This was a small community hospital with one anesthetist, me, and a single resident at the time. The patient had a good outcome. I was the on-call anesthetist, but it was rare in our little community that anything happened. It was an irresponsible thing to do. My chief gave me an ultimatum, talk to someone and get it together or I'd lose my job. That was a wake up call. We had a program for medical staff that allowed us to seek help through a third party referral service at no cost and it was confidential. I made an appointment to see a counselor. I was blessed that my partner was supportive without being enabling. I saw this counselor about a dozen times and it was helpful. At least I thought so, to a point anyway. We discussed what happened at the farm. I spoke candidly. He did not appear surprised when I told him about the traumatic event in my life when I was nine. I shared the nightmares too and told him Molly admitted to having the same dreams. He knew my gender orientation was toward the same sex. I don't make that a secret. I understand science and I use it every day, but the interpretation of psychological test results that can see into a person's psyche seems subjective to me. When I asked him if these tests were valid, he was quick to point out that they've been recognized as valid for 50 years. He claimed answers to a series of yes or no questions can reveal very much about a person. But how does he know if the patient's answers are even truthful? How is it possible to see three different psychiatrists and get three different diagnoses? During our last session, he told me, 
I needed to accept the most likely explanation. I asked him to please explain. They commented arrogantly, Occam's razor. I still didn't understand. He said the most obvious answer is usually the correct choice. You girls fantasized about going to the circus and saw in your own mind's eye an image of a merry-go-round. You may have heard music from a calliope, but not from the backyard. It could have been carried on the wind for miles or have come from a television program and signed your grandparents' home. Molly probably never saw a thing. That's why the two of you could never speak about it. Arguably, it is the real reason. Where did you go for those four hours? Who knows? Maybe you were asleep in the barn. I don't see that as important now. Stories can be embellished over the years and facts interpreted differently with each retelling. Indignantly, I ask, do you think I'm making this up? For what reason? No, he said, I don't believe you intended to deceive anyone. Then he shocked me to the core. I think it's possible the story has changed over the years. Then he paused for a long moment and asked, isn't it possible, Julia, that you took Molly's virginity that day? I had trouble putting those words together. I exploded, you son of a go to hell. That was the last counseling session I had with him. He considered it a breakthrough. I thought it was crap. He obviously wasn't listening, but he cleared me to return to work. Then the nightmares returned with a vengeance. That confirmed he was full of Something paranormal happened to me and Molly, and I will never believe anything else. Mr. Lovelace, this is going to sound crazy again, but I'm just going to say it. You know, I want to put it out there for your opinion and for other people, too. I think we were kidnapped by aliens, what you called an abduction in your book. They took us and did God knows what to us, but it changed us. It has taken me a lifetime, but I'm okay with it now. Molly's gone. I don't know how much time I have left. I have significant health problems myself. I'm glad I wrote to you because I saw your friend in my Molly. This counselor thought this was all a dream or a childhood fantasy. Well, bullshit. I know a little about the human mind. I understand human anatomy and physiology. Most little bastards did something to Molly and me on a cellular level, maybe at the molecular or even the quantum level. Who the hell knows? but they changed us. Molly knew something about what happened that day. I'm sure whatever happened, I never hurt Molly. I'm sure of that. I think they broke her mind and it cost her sanity. After the mental health appointments, I'd had enough. I don't want hypnosis to help me remember or recover memories. I do not think memories recovered by hypnosis can be counted on as a reliable record of past events. I've seen it in my practice where people have all kinds of wild delusions under the influence of hypnotic drugs and drugs that have a supposed amnesic effect. I realize now that I'm almost 70 years old. What happened to us was not from the solar system or galaxy, maybe not from this dimension, 
This has been in my face all my life. I think it's time to put it to bed. I don't want to think about it anymore. Molly is gone and I just want to live in peace. It was nice of you and your wife to drive over and meet me for breakfast. I think I'm going to sign off. The more I talk about this, the harder it gets and the more anxiety I have. I think I'll try to enjoy semi-retirement, maybe work a day or two. We want to travel and see some of the country. I want to forget about this stuff for now. Thanks for returning my emails and taking the time to talk to me. Maybe this story will help someone else. Good luck with writing and may God bless you. Sincerely, Julia. Julia passed away in January 2020 from pancreatic cancer. I hope she's found peace. When I read the book, this one really jumped out at me because traditionally, and I think Forrest and I both do this now, when we're, when we're looking at stories like this, we start going through and you start making a list of questions you're going to have, and then they get answered as the story unfolds. Most of them get answered. You know, well, what if it was this? What if it was dissociation for some traumatic event? What if it was X, Y, or Z? And all of that plays out. She went through that and she explained all that to you. That's what's fascinating about it. The way that I understood the geography as the story is laid out, you know, they have the house, they have this berm, and it's, it's a significant berm. It has the road on top of it that tractors can drive on. I immediately thought of, uh, I don't know why, it's to make an obscure movie reference. I immediately thought of when they played chicken in the tractors in Footloose. They were on like kind of a <laughs> yeah. canal thing, you know? Well, <laughs> but as like, far as movies go, what came to mind in that kind of, the way the story is written, the recollections, even the way you told the story, Terry, that... It reminded me, the themes reminded me of a Ray Bradbury movie, The Illustrated Man. And I don't know if you've ever seen that, but... I've not. I've read a lot of Ray Bradbury, but I, I have not seen the movie. Watch the movie. It's interesting if you can. It, it should be out there somewhere. It starts off at a pastoral setting, but Rod Steiger is in it. Basically, it takes off onto all these different timelines. A thousand years in the future, distant past... Just the imagery alone and the feel of it is that as soon as these kids got up onto that berm, or actually as soon as they heard the music, that lulled them to this really negative experience. And I don't know if you want to say it's even uh, evil in a sense, but it didn't turn out well for them. And that is, as we were talking about in our opening discussion, there is a narrative to this that seems like a movie in that it's like a dreamlike movie, but the details of this don't follow any kind of other story in that it basically just, it, it ruined one life. It severely affected the other sister, Julia's life. It's not a happy ending. And what can be learned from this other than most of these experiences you hear about aren't great and they don't seem to care. There, there's no imparting of special powers or gifts. They do what they want and we're left to suffer the consequences. Anyway, that, that movie just reminded me of, it's all kind of a, a weird dream that's been suppressed. Yeah, yeah, when I was talking to Julia, I had this thought, you know, is there some intentional element of this or is this just collateral damage we suffer? Right. That's a really good question. And also, you know, it has that line that comes up again and again and again. It comes up in the in all these encounters, like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at what happened to these, these two sisters, there's good reason to be afraid. 
there's a pretty good reason to be afraid. So because this is, it's something that affected them forever. And, and what I was going to say about the geography of the layout a few minutes ago is that my understanding was that you had the berm and then you had the pond behind the berm, which was a, you know, obviously a drowning concern. So the, the searchers are out there in the John boats looking and they can obviously see the berm from the boats. They would have seen them if they were up there. Why would they be out in boats with poles if two girls are just lying there on the berm, you know, asleep, awake, whatever, they would have seen them. And obviously they would have checked there first. So where were they during that time? And that's the part that's really fascinating to me. And it's interesting too, how the family wouldn't talk about it. Cause that also is like common ground, seems to be common ground with a lot of the stories and including even what happened with you and Toby. It's like who, all the experiencers are like, okay, we're done talking about this. And in some cases, their relationships are damaged forever. Yeah. You know, I, I talked to Robert Hastings, who wrote UFOs and Nukes. He's wrote a couple of books. He's very active and yes. he's semi-retired now. That He validated for me that in the armed forces, if two or more people have an experience and see something, I mean, not just something dart across the sky, I mean, something a little more intimate like what we experienced, that they bust those guys up. They send them to different duty stations. They, they get them away from one another. And I, right. I saw that as a common theme in the stories people sent to me, that even family members won't talk about it or yeah. like, well, if the band breaks up, you know, that story from the guy from South Africa Yes, is the exception to the rule because he said, we're like old war mates, you know, we get together. Yeah, they would go out and have drinks. Yeah, I thought, that's great. My thinking was the nature of the experience was, was pleasant and friendly for the most part from the occupants. It was. I love the fact that he offered, you know, I know a little bit about machinery. Let me come in and take yeah. a look at it for you. That just cracked me up. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, hey, you know, things operate on a similar principle at the base, perhaps throughout the universe. Why not? And a fresh set of eyes can always be helpful. So I, I really enjoyed that. And, and it goes to show not every encounter or possibly every type of being is horribly negative or uncaring or reptilian or insectoid in their thinking and, and feelings, but you get a whole smorgasbord of, of different kinds of beings and experiences. But there are, yeah, definitely recurring themes here. And also, I think different technologies, which is also fascinating to me. In this sense, what Scott was talking about, where at some point the, the girls are just over the berm, so they're out of view, but once they go looking for them, they're not actually there, I don't believe. But at some point, it seems these ETs were also able to alter the perceptions and consciousness of the family and the searchers themselves. Yeah. In that somehow they either they were just beamed back to the berm or they were transported, but in either case, no one saw it. When right. there's a there's a ton of people out there for that very purpose. And so how does that happen? So they're obviously able to manipulate our perceptions from a distance. Terry, there was another story that talked about a woman who had her fetus go missing on two occasions. Yes. But one thing I found interesting is that she, of course, had a lot of emotional and just logical trouble with dealing with this until she had heard from, you could say, her ET handlers that you agreed to this. And that statement was fascinating to me in that there, again, we go back to our, our first part of our discussion in part one, and that there seems to be an aspect, to a degree, needing your permission to do this or asking for permission. 
much as the monkeys wanted you, you know, come with us rather than just taking you, they asked you. Yeah. So I was wondering, do you get a sense that that's not always the case though? Like obviously with Julia and Molly, they're too young or why do they need the consent of children? But maybe they agreed to something that they didn't know was going to be so horrific. Or what what are your thoughts on that as far as them having some kind of permission or by their curiosity and them entering the ship that they're complicit somehow or it's tacit approval? You know, this is just conjecture. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. I mean, I wonder if maybe they ask everyone. I don't know. And then we just don't, they just don't remember it. I suppose it's like with, with people. Some are polite. They ask for permission. They want your consent. And some people just do what they want for their benefit. And they don't really care what the answer is. And so, and obviously it seems here that with an advanced intelligence or entity that they're going to know that this is going to mess up your life, that this is not all going to be forgotten and water under the bridge. And they may not know or care, but it's also, Scott and I read another story where somebody had an experience and the next thing he, he remembers is some kind of dreamlike state where there's an entity leaning over him with a finger outstretched and says, okay, we're going to fix this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the finger comes down. On the forehead? Yes. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, okay, that fixed it, but not totally. Oh, this is the, uh, it's a story we came, we just came across. Basically, this person then ended up with other medical issues. Oh, you know where it was? With the book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon with George Knapp and Colm Kelleher. And there's a few instances in that book where they describe encounters a lot with orbs and not maybe outright aliens as they appear, but with the phenomena. And there being a, a material human presence or, or human-like figure with, with those cases. But in one case, yes, this guy remembering that this orb comes through the window of his car, passes through his shoulder, and basically messes up his health. But he does remember this kind of a being coming over him later in a dream saying like, okay, don't worry, we're going to fix this. But he ended up with a lot of other health conditions that were negative for years, as well as other members of his family. And that's another theme that we see here is that these conditions seem to go to all the experiencers. Sometimes they travel and transmit to other family members or, or other friends. Have you noticed that? That things like cancer, pancreatic cancer or depression, alcoholism, all these other negative factors seem to permeate a lot of these experiences. You know, I, I think I have to agree with that because uh, it tends to be a familial phenomenon. They take multiple family members. I think that happens more often than people believe. I mean. So, Terry, how many times did you meet with Julia? Just the one time or? Just the one time. We met for breakfast. Yeah. What was that like? What, is, what was she like in person? And what was that breakfast like? You know, it was emotional. You know, we hugged. She cried a little bit. And she said, you know, I do want to get done with this and put it out of my life. But at the same time, she said, you know, this has been good for me. She said, this has been cathartic for me on some level to, to share these emails with you and tell somebody about my story. She said, the only other person I told the whole story to was this counselor, and he didn't believe me. And she said, I think you believe me. And I said, yeah, I do. I, I do believe you. Just a note on that. It, that's We hear that all the time because with some other of the 
more extreme spiritual stories we come across, I mean, most mainstream Western medicine can only go so far. They have to jump off at some point. And then if you take the elements, and this is personally, I am very tired of hearing Occam's razor be used as an excuse for everything, because it's, I believe it's not always the simplest explanation is the one that's probably most correct or accurate. It's the one we want to hear the most. Yeah. We don't want to hear any complications. We don't want to hear about any outside force that we have no control over that can uh, have total control over us. And in this case, sadly, and I, I felt a lot of emotion and anger when I first read that because you're now being accused of something awful. That's just conjecture based on a discussion. I mean, what an awful thing to, I mean, that, I just found it ridiculous. The, the doctor believes that that's a breakthrough, but you've just saddled this person with revealing something or suggesting something awful that they then have to mull over and contend with. Yeah. That they hurt their own sister. And it's like, yeah, maybe you've got that out. But in that therapist's mind, like, well, that's got to be the truth, right? Because none of this other stuff of spinning carousels and all that, they can't be real. So it has to be she hurt her sister. And uh, now that we've moved past that, we're all fine here. And it's just another layer of insult and injury to a horrible experience. It sure is. Yeah. But he cleared her to go back to work, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, in that sense, that's, I think, also another aspect where people who do experience these things just will say what people want to hear them say. Well, I, you know, maybe I was drunk, I don't know, or maybe it was just a very vivid dream. So other people can get on with their lives. And so they tell people what they think they want to hear. And that, uh, you want me just to say that it was a dream or I didn't know what I was looking at? I'll do that if we can just now forget this. I have a close friend who's a uh, Dallas psychiatrist, practicing psychiatrist here in Dallas. He uh, is a huge believer. He became a huge believer in the UFO phenomenon after uh, years of talking to people that he found to be not delusional, sane, rational people that may have some problems to deal with, but they're not subject to hallucinations. Right. He said that that's a very old school Freudian type of uh, conclusion that she may have cost Molly her virginity. Right. And it's like Forrest said, they have to jump off at some point. It's like, okay, well, we're done with this. And this this is what happened here. You're just misinterpreting it. It's, I mean, it's right up there with swamp gas. You know, it's like, okay, that's what you say. It's Venus, it's swamp gas. It's that maligned quote, but still, it's an interesting story. And what it, you know, you feel bad for those sisters and what it did to them. You know, it's obviously horrible. Yeah, I mean, there, there's things that echo throughout uh, also hearing that, even in extreme pain in hospice care, she refused morphine. And I just thought, I think that's because she's been messed with enough Yeah, with anesthetics. And it, it's interesting, her sister ends up dealing with anesthesiology in that kind of, I don't know, it just, it's an odd coincidence, I suppose, that she ends up in, in that field dealing with this, but it also, with Molly, a lot of the rest of her life was about numbing herself excess with pharmaceuticals and and painkillers, but then again, refusing them at the end. It's a strange mishmash. Well said. Just to ask you, it seems Julia perhaps, or at least the way the story is told, ended up with better math skills where they weren't present before from her experience. That's what she says. That's what she claims. Did you find yourself with any unexpected skills or abilities after your encounters? You know, I can't, I can't claim that I did. I really can't. Hmm. Kind of went off my life, you know. It was kind of, yeah. I was old enough that that was the plan. I mean, but, you know, who knows? You know, they messed with me as a kid. I don't know. 
Maybe so. Right. How would you know? <laughs> right. Can you levitate a Rubik's cube? <laughs> well, no, I can't. Not for the life of okay. me. <laughs> and I can't. I can't work a Sudoku puzzle either. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting as far as uh, do you wonder if that's on purpose? What the experiments were is that just uh, did it open something up to another level? Yeah. Know, what, what is brain, that? Right what is brain? the goal of them? I mean, is it a precursor to, oh, okay, now we can elevate you to this next level of something, or is it an exper- Is it a genetic experiment? I know you said, Terry, on our on the last episode you were on, you've you've had your DNA work done, everything's normal, you're 100% human, all that stuff. So it's like, so then you wonder, like, what is the goal of that exercise for all these people that are having these memories and contacting you and saying, hey, I was I was supposed to be manipulating this cube or this pyramid or this whatever. It's like, what is the goal of that study? What is trying to be accomplished, I wonder? You know, I had a person write to me and, and claimed that they had the same uh, experience. And they said that the ETs told him that he was being evaluated for possible service in the uh, some kind of special forces. Uh, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? That's, that was his take on it. That was what he right. thought was the purpose of the exercise was. Right. So, but even if that message is coming through, it's like, and this is something I've come to think more and more, just as we've covered many things over the years from all realms of what you might describe as paranormal is, you know, you can't trust any message that you're getting. It's like they're telling you what you want to hear to get you through, even the don't be afraid. Yeah. It's like, well, you should be afraid. The rest of your life is screwed. From here on out, <laughs> you're going to have a horrible life. So it's like, no, don't be afraid. No, I think I should be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? Go yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. There is one humorous <laughs> anecdote. Our good friend Rob Christofferson of the, our Strange Skies podcast, longtime friend and fellow podcaster, and I can't remember exactly the details, but I think he was telling us in one of our conversational chats about a case of an older gentleman who was abducted and got through the the alien evaluation and they were like yeah your health is really not up to it or you're not really we're, we're gonna go in another direction so thank you much we're gonna sit you back down <laughs> he's like wait wait is, i'm not good enough <laughs> like what's wrong with me it's like no no you're fine it's just yeah you're not really suited for uh what we need so sorry for the inconvenience and they they dropped him back off and he remembered <laughs> all of it because it wasn't we don't really need to put you under there's gonna be no procedure so just carry on. <laughs> so there's every type of experience under the sun. I mean, that's one of the interesting aspects to me about this phenomenon is that it's not just one thing. People think, I believe, who don't know much about it, think it's it's just, it's all grays. It's everyone gets probed the same way. It's all these same kind of things because that's easier to, to try and wrap your head around. But what we've learned uh, over the years is that it's just every type of experience and every type of visual. And what the second half of your book also illustrates is that there are a lot more experiences that people relay that on the surface don't seem like a UFO experience at all. Yeah. The Christmas store, even going on a, a wild pig hunt, the strangeness of it and not seeing anything else other than lights in the brush. Yeah, that you know, the, the firefighter guy. Nothing really other than seeing some lights in the sky. Yeah. You know, he admitted having a couple of beers. Well, maybe he had a few more. I don't know. I can't judge. Yeah. Uh, you know, he reaches for the outhouse door handle and, and touches it. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up in the a good logical explanation for that. Nothing really spooky happened. Right. 
Well, Terry, we just want to thank you so much for coming back on the show, being so generous with your time. It was wonderful to have you back for these two episodes. And if you want to come back again, you're always welcome. We'd love, especially love to hear from you again. If you, if you go through regression therapy and uncover some new information, that would be fascinating to hear about whatever you wouldn't say for a book. We consider you a friend and we're hoping too, as, as things get more opened up in the world, God willing, with this new COVID variant, we can actually meet meet up in person at some point. Well, you know? certainly a, a, one of the conventions, one of the many uh, speaking engagements uh, Terry attends and is invited to, but maybe just something fun where we can all kind of get together and uh, hear more about this because regardless of everything that's happened to all of us individually, it's the sharing of these stories and and the testimony from people, which I think is important because that's all we're left with. And it, it shouldn't be tucked away or something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be in LA in April for Yvonne Smith runs a, oh, cool. uh, a class for regressing abductees. Oh, well, maybe you guys can get together. So, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I'll, I'll yeah. give you plenty of heads up. Maybe we can get together, have a beer right. and, and talk about paranormal stuff or whatever is the topic of the day. <laughs> I would love that. Absolutely. We'll make it happen. Yeah. yeah. So Terry, you want to tell our listeners where the best place to get your new book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning is? Yes. My book is on, on Amazon, same as Devil's Den. So The Reckoning is in print and in... Uh, reasonably priced mm -hmm. Kindle version. And I also did a uh, full audio book where I read the book cover to cover. So it's in any three of those formats. And uh, again, Amazon, you can go to my website, terrylovelace.com, which is mm -hmm. kind of behind. It's, it's It talks about <laughs> Devil's Den and have some interesting photographs, but I'll soon have right. some more information on there regarding the reckoning. Or you can email me at terrylovelace mm -hmm. at yahoo.com. If you've got a question, a comment, happy to talk to anyone. Fantastic. Great. And then, Scott, I just want to uh, mention one thing you and I talked about when we did the research and read, read through the book. If you buy the digital copy of Terry's book at Amazon, I paid just a few bucks more and got the audio read-along. And what's cool for us is that you were narrating the book and I could follow along with the type. So that allowed me to take notes, and but listen to you and keep going. And it was really an enjoyable experience. But I just want to let people know if they, they weren't aware of that. If you buy the uh, the e-copy, you could pay a little extra and then get the narration part along with that and play them simultaneously. I didn't even, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Yeah, I was, I wasn't aware of it. And then, you know, you buy, it's like, okay, let me, let me get into reading this. And it's like, hey, you know, you can also listen to this. And here's the other cool thing for us to research is that, the text will it will highlight along with your narration. Really? Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. And then of course, if you stop there, I can. It's like, oh, let me put in a load of laundry. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can continue on with my phone or iPad, and then it just it's just syncing up all the time. And so, yeah. But but it was a pleasure hearing you read it because it is such a personal story. Cool. cool. And as well as the other uh, the other stories in the other half of the book. So really enjoyed it. Recommend it to everyone. Yeah, we can't wait to talk to you again about something just mind blowing. That's going to wrap up our second series with Terry Lovelace. I hope you don't have any trouble sleeping tonight. We'll be back in probably a little less than two weeks with our year-end Christmas party special. We'll see you there. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting our sponsors. 
Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and Brandon Schexnader. The show is co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>